BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 2. Chapter 4. It was six o'clock in the morning when the settlers, after a hasty breakfast, set out to reach by the shortest way the western coast of the island. And how long would it take to do this? Cyrus Harding had said two hours, but of course that depended on the nature of the obstacles they might meet with. As it was probable that they would have to cut a path through the grass, shrubs, and creepers, they marched axe in hand, and with guns also ready, wisely taking warning from the cries of the wild beasts heard in the night. The exact position of the encampment could be determined by the bearing of Mount Franklin, and as the volcano arose in the north at a distance of less than three miles, they had only to go straight towards the southwest to reach the western coast. They set out, having first carefully secured the canoe. Pencroft and Neb carried sufficient provision for the little band for at least two days. It would not thus be necessary to hunt. The engineer advised his companions to refrain from firing, that their presence might not be betrayed to anyone near the shore. The first hatchet-blows were given among the brushwood in the midst of some mastic trees, a little above the cascade, and, his compass in his hand, Cyrus Harding led the way. The forest here was composed for the most part of trees which had already been met with near the lake and on Prospect Heights. There were deodars, douglas firs, casuarinas, gum-trees, eucalypti, hibiscus, cedars, and other trees generally of a moderate size, for their number prevented their growth. Since their departure, the settlers had descended the slopes, which constituted the mountain system of the island, onto a dry soil, but the luxuriant vegetation of which indicated it to be watered either by some subterranean marsh or by some stream. However, Cyrus Harding did not remember having seen, at the time of his excursion to the crater, 
any other watercourses but the Red Creek and the Mercy. During the first part of their excursion they saw numerous troops of monkeys who exhibited great astonishment at the sight of men, whose appearance was so new to them. Gideon Spillett jokingly asked whether these active and merry quadrupeds did not consider him and his companions as degenerate brothers. And certainly pedestrians, hindered at each step by bushes, caught by creepers, barred by trunks of trees, did not shine beside those supple animals who, bounding from branch to branch, were hindered by nothing on their course. The monkeys were numerous, but happily they did not manifest any hostile disposition. Several pigs, agoutis, kangaroos, and other rodents were seen, also two or three koalas, at which Pencroft longed to have a shot. "'But,' said he, "'you may jump and play just now. We shall have one or two words to say to you on our way back.' At half-past nine the way was suddenly found to be barred by an unknown stream, from thirty to forty feet broad, whose rapid current dashed foaming over the numerous rocks which interrupted its course. This creek was deep and clear, but it was absolutely unnavigable. "'We are cut off!' cried Neb. "'No,' replied Herbert. "'It is only a stream, and we can easily swim over.' "'What would be the use of that?' returned Harding. This creek evidently runs to the sea. Let us remain on this side and follow the bank, and I shall be much astonished if it does not lead us very quickly to the coast. Forward. One minute, said the reporter. The name of this creek, my friends. Do not let us leave our geography incomplete. All right, said Pencroft. Name it, my boy, said the engineer, addressing the lad. "'Will it not be better to wait until we have explored it to its mouth?' answered Herbert. "'Very well,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'Let us follow it as fast as we can, without stopping.' "'Still another minute,' said Pencroft. "'What's the matter?' asked the reporter. "'Though hunting is forbidden, fishing is allowed, I suppose,' said the sailor. "'We have no time to lose,' replied the engineer. "'Oh, five minutes,' replied Pencroft. I only ask for five minutes to use in the interest of our breakfast." And Pencroft, lying down on the bank, plunged his arm into the water, and soon pulled up several dozen of fine crayfish from among the stones. "'These will be good!' cried Neb, going to the sailor's aid. "'As I said, there is everything in this island, except tobacco,' muttered Pencroft, with a sigh. The fishing did not take five minutes, for the crayfish were swarming in the creek. A bag was filled with crustaceae, whose shells were of a cobalt blue. The settlers then pushed on. They advanced more rapidly and easily along the banks of the river than in the forest. From time to time they came upon the traces of animals of a large size who had come to quench their thirst at the stream, but none were actually seen and it was evidently not in this part of the forest that the peccary had received the bullet which had cost Pencroft a grinder. In the meanwhile, considering the rapid current, Harding was led to suppose that he and his companions were much farther from the western coast than they had at first supposed. In fact, at this hour, the rising tide would have turned back the current of the creek, if its mouth had only been a few miles distant. Now this effect was not produced, and the water pursued its natural course. The engineer was much astonished at this, and frequently consulted his compass, 
to assure himself that some turn of the river was not leading them again into the far west. However, the creek gradually widened, and its waters became less tumultuous. The trees on the right bank were as close together as on the left bank, and it was impossible to distinguish anything beyond them. But these masses of wood were evidently uninhabited, for Top did not bark, and the intelligent animal would not have failed to signal the presence of any stranger in the neighborhood. At half-past ten, to the great surprise of Cyrus Harding, Herbert, who was a little in front, suddenly stopped and exclaimed, THE SEA! In a few minutes more the whole western shore of the island lay extended before the eyes of the settlers. But what a contrast between this and the eastern coast upon which chance had first thrown them! No granite cliff, no rocks, not even a sandy beach. The forest reached the shore, and the tall trees bending over the water were beaten by the waves. It was not such a shore as is usually formed by nature, either by extending a vast carpet of sand, or by grouping masses of rock, but a beautiful border consisting of the most splendid trees. The bank was raised a little above the level of the sea, and on this luxuriant soil, supported by a granite base, the fine forest trees seemed to be as firmly planted as in the interior of the island. The colonists were then on the shore of an unimportant little harbour, which would scarcely have contained even two or three fishing boats. It served as a neck to the new creek, of which the curious thing was that its waters, instead of joining the sea by a gentle slope, fell from a height of more than forty feet, which explained why the rising tide was not felt up the stream. In fact, the tides of the Pacific, even at their maximum elevation, could never reach the level of the river, and doubtless millions of years would pass before the water would have worn away the granite and hollowed a practicable mouth. It was settled that the name of Falls River should be given to this stream. Beyond, towards the north, the forest border was prolonged for a space of nearly two miles. Then the trees became scarcer, and beyond that again the picturesque heights described a nearly straight line, which ran north and south. On the contrary, all the part of the shore between Falls River and Reptile End was a mass of wood, magnificent trees, some straight, others bent, so that the long sea-swell bathed their roots. Now it was this coast, that is, all the Serpentine Peninsula, that was to be explored, for this part of the shore offered a refuge to castaways, which the other wild and barren side must have refused. The weather was fine and clear, and from the height of a hillock on which Neb and Pencroft had arranged breakfast, a wide view was obtained. There was, however, not a sail in sight. Nothing could be seen along the shore, as far as the eye could reach. But the engineer would take nothing for granted until he had explored the coast to the very extremity of the Serpentine Peninsula. Breakfast was soon dispatched and at half-past eleven the captain gave the signal for departure. Instead of proceeding over the summit of a cliff or along a sandy beach, the settlers were obliged to remain under cover of the trees so that they might continue on the shore. The distance which separated Falls River from Reptile End was about twelve miles. It would have taken the settlers four hours to do this on a clear ground and without hurrying themselves, but as it was they needed double the time for what with trees to go round, bushes to cut down, and creepers to chop away, 
they were impeded at every step, these obstacles greatly lengthening their journey. There was, however, nothing to show that a shipwreck had taken place recently. It is true that, as Gideon Spillett observed, any remains of it might have drifted out to sea, and they might not take it for granted that because they could find no traces of it, a ship had not been cast away on the coast. The porter's argument was just, and besides, the incident of the bullet proved that a shot must have been fired in Lincoln Island within three months. It was already five o'clock, and there were still two miles between the settlers and the extremity of the Serpentine Peninsula. It was evident that after having reached Reptile End, Harding and his companions would not have time to return before dark to their encampment near the source of the Mercy. It would therefore be necessary to pass the night on the promontory. But they had no lack of provisions, which was lucky, for there were no animals on the shore, though birds, on the contrary, abounded. Jacamars, curacus, tragopans, grouse, lories, parrots, cockatoos, pheasants, pigeons, and a hundred others. There was not a tree without a nest, and not a nest which was not full of flapping wings. Towards seven o'clock the weary explorers arrived at Reptile End. Here the seaside forest ended, and the shore resumed the customary appearance of a coast, with rocks, reefs, and sands. It was possible that something might be found here, but darkness came on, and the further exploration had to be put off to the next day. Pencroft and Herbert hastened on to find a suitable place for their camp. Among the last trees of the forest of the far west, the boy found several thick clumps of bamboos. "'Good,' said he. "'This is a valuable discovery.' "'Valuable,' returned Pencroft. "'Certainly,' replied Herbert. "'I may say, Pencroft, that the bark of the bamboo, cut into flexible laths, is used for making baskets, that this bark, mashed into a paste, is used for the manufacture of Chinese paper, that the stalks furnish, according to their size, canes and pipes, and are used for conducting water, that large bamboos make excellent material for building, being light and strong, and being never attacked by insects.' I will add that by sawing the bamboo in two at the joint, keeping for the bottom the part of the transverse film which forms the joint, useful cups are obtained, which are much in use among the Chinese. No, you don't care for that, but—' "'But what?' "'But I can tell you, if you are ignorant of it, that in India these bamboos are eaten like asparagus.' "'Asparagus thirty feet high!' exclaimed the sailor. "'And are they good?' Excellent, replied Herbert. Only is not the stems of thirty feet high which are eaten, but the young shoots. Perfect, my boy, perfect, replied Pencroft. I will also add that the pith of the young stalks, preserved in vinegar, makes a good pickle. Better and better, Herbert. And lastly, that the bamboos exude a sweet liquor which can be made into a very agreeable drink. Is that all? asked the sailor. That is all. And they don't happen to do for smoking? No, my poor Pencroft. Herbert and the sailor had not to look long for a place in which to pass the night. The rocks, which must have been violently beaten by the sea under the influence of the winds of the southwest, presented many cavities in which shelter could be found against the night air. But just as they were about to enter one of these caves, a loud roaring arrested them. 
"'Back!' cried Pencroft. "'Our guns are only loaded with small shot, and beasts which can roar as loud as that would care no more for it than for grains of salt.' And the sailor, seizing Herbert by the arm, dragged him behind a rock, just as a magnificent animal showed itself at the entrance of the cavern. It was a jaguar of a size at least equal to its Asiatic congeners. That is to say, it measured five feet from the extremity of its head to the beginning of its tail. The yellow color of its hair was relieved by streaks and regular oblong spots of black, which contrasted with the white of its chest. Herbert recognized it as the ferocious rival of the tiger, as formidable as the puma, which is the rival of the largest wolf. The jaguar advanced, and gazed around him with blazing eyes, his hair bristling as if this was not the first time he had scented men. At this moment the reporter appeared round a rock, and Herbert, thinking that he had not seen the jaguar, was about to rush towards him, when Gideon Spilett signed to him to remain where he was. This was not his first tiger, and advancing to within ten feet of the animal, he remained motionless, his gun to his shoulder, without moving a muscle. The jaguar collected itself for a spring, but at that moment a shot struck it in the eyes, and it fell dead. Herbert and Pencroft rushed towards the jaguar. Neb and Harding also ran up, and they remained for some instants contemplating the animal as it lay stretched on the ground, thinking that its magnificent skin would be a great ornament to the hall at Granite House. "'Oh, Mr. Spilett, how I admire and envy you!' cried Herbert, in a fit of very natural enthusiasm. "'Well, my boy,' replied the reporter, "'you could have done the same.' "'I, with such coolness!' "'Imagine to yourself, Herbert, that the jaguar is only a hare, and you would fire as quietly as possible.' "'That is,' rejoined Pencroft, "'that it is not more dangerous than a hare.' "'And now,' said Gideon Spilett, "'since the jaguar has left its abode, I do not see, my friends, why we should not take possession of it for the night. "'But others may come,' said Pencroft. "'It will be enough to light a fire at the entrance of the cavern,' said the reporter, "'and no wild beast will dare to cross the threshold.' "'Into the jaguar's house, then,' replied the sailor, dragging after him the body of the animal. While Neb skid in the jaguar, his companions collected abundant supply of dry wood from the forest, which they heaped up at the cave. Cyrus Harding, seeing the clump of bamboos, cut a quantity, which he mingled with the other fuel. This done, they entered the grotto, of which the floor was strewn with bones. The guns were carefully loaded, in case of a sudden attack. They had supper, and then just before they lay down to rest, the heap of wood piled at the entrance was set fire to. Immediately a regular explosion, or rather a series of reports, broke the silence. The noise was caused by the bamboos, which, as the flames reached them, exploded like fireworks. The noise was enough to terrify even the boldest of wild beasts. It was not the engineer who had invented this way of causing loud explosions, for, according to Marco Polo, the Tartars have employed it for many centuries to drive away from their encampments the formidable wild beasts of Central Asia. End of chapter
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part 2, Chapter 5 Cyrus Harding and his companions slept like innocent marmots in the cave which the jaguar had so politely left at their disposal. At sunrise all were on the shore, at the extremity of the promontory, and their gaze was directed towards the horizon, of which two-thirds of the circumference were visible. For the last time the engineer could ascertain that not a sail nor the wreck of a ship was on the sea, and even with a telescope nothing suspicious could be discovered. There was nothing either on the shore, at least, in the straight line of three miles which formed the south side of the promontory, for beyond that rising ground hid the rest of the coast, and even from the extremity of the Serpentine Peninsula Claw Cape could not be seen. The southern coast of the island still remained to be explored. Now should they undertake it immediately and devote this day to it? This was not included in their first plan. In fact, when the boat was abandoned at the sources of the Mercy, it had been agreed that after having surveyed the west coast, they should go back to it and return to Granite House by the Mercy. Harding then thought that the western coast would have offered refuge, either to a ship in distress or to a vessel in her regular course. But now, as he saw that this coast presented no good anchorage, he wished to seek on the south what they had not been able to find on the west. Gideon Spilett proposed to continue the exploration, that the question of the supposed wreck might be completely settled, and he asked at what distance Claw Cape might be from the extremity of the peninsula. "'About thirty miles,' replied the engineer, "'if we take into consideration the curvings of the coast.' Thirty miles,' returned Spilett. "'That would be a long day's march. Nevertheless, I think that we should return to Granite House by the south coast.' But, observed Herbert, from Claw Cape to Granite House there must be at least another ten miles. Make it forty miles in all, replied the engineer, and do not hesitate to do it. At least we should survey the unknown shore, and then we shall not have to begin the exploration again. Very good, said Pencroft. But the boat? The boat has remained by itself for one day at the sources of the Mercy, replied Gideon Spilett. It may just as well stay there two days. As yet we have had no reason to think that the island is infested by thieves. Yet, said the sailor, when I remember the history of the turtle, I am far from confident of that. The turtle! The turtle! replied the reporter. Don't you know that the sea turned it over? Who knows? murmured the engineer. But, said Neb, Neb had evidently something to say, for he opened his mouth to speak, and yet said nothing. "'What do you want to say, Neb?' asked the engineer. "'If we were turned by the shore to Claw Cape,' replied Neb, "'after having doubled the Cape, we shall be stopped.' "'By the mercy, of course,' replied Herbert, "'and we shall have neither bridge nor boat by which to cross.' "'But, Captain,' added Pencroft, with a few floating trunks we shall have no difficulty in crossing the river. Never mind, said Spilett. It will be useful to construct a bridge if we wish to have an easy access to the far west. A bridge! cried Pencroft. 
Well, is not the captain the best engineer in his profession? He will make us a bridge when we want one. As to transporting you this evening to the other side of the Mercy, and that without wetting one thread of your clothes, I will take care of that. We have provisions for another day, and besides we can get plenty of game. Forward! The reporter's proposal, so strongly seconded by the sailor, received general approbation, for each wished to have their doubts set at rest, and by returning by Claw Cape the exploration would be ended. But there was not an hour to lose, for forty miles was a long march, and they could not hope to reach Granite House before night. At six o'clock in the morning the little band set out. As a precaution the guns were loaded with ball, and Top, who led the van, received orders to beat about the edge of the forest. From the extremity of the promontory which formed the tail of the peninsula, the coast was rounded for a distance of five miles, which was rapidly passed over, without even the most minute investigations bringing to light the least trace of any old or recent landings. No debris, no mark of an encampment, no cinders of a fire, nor even a footprint. From the point of the peninsula on which the settlers now were, their gaze could extend along the southwest. Twenty-five miles off the coast terminated in the Claw Cape, which loomed dimly through the morning mists, and which, by the phenomenon of the mirage, appeared as if suspended between land and water. Between the place occupied by the colonists and the other side of the immense bay, the shore was composed, first, of a tract of lowland, bordered in the background by trees. Then the shore became more irregular, projecting sharp points into the sea, and finally ended in the black rocks which, accumulated in picturesque disorder, formed Claw Cape. Such was the development of this part of the island, which the settlers took in at a glance, while stopping for an instant. "'If a vessel ran in here,' said Pencroft, "'she would certainly be lost. Sandbanks and reefs everywhere. Bad quarters!' "'But at least something would be left of the ship,' observed the reporter. "'There might be pieces of wood on the rocks, but nothing on the sands,' replied the sailor. "'Why?' "'Because the sands are still more dangerous than the rocks, for they swallow up everything that is thrown on them. In a few days the hull of a ship of several hundred tons would disappear entirely in there.' "'So, Pencroft,' asked the engineer, "'if a ship has been wrecked on these banks,' Is it not astonishing that there is now no trace of her remaining? No, Captain, with the aid of time and tempest. However, it would be surprising, even in this case, that some of the masts or spars should not have been thrown on the beach out of reach of the waves. Let us go on with our search, then, returned Cyrus Harding. At one o'clock the colonists arrived at the other side of Washington Bay, they having now gone a distance of twenty miles. They then halted for breakfast. Here began the irregular coast, covered with lines of rocks and sandbanks. The long sea-swell could be seen breaking over the rocks in the bay, forming a foamy fringe. From this point to Claw Cape the beach was very narrow between the edge of the forest and the reefs. Walking was now more difficult, on account of the numerous rocks which encumbered the beach. The granite cliff also gradually increased in height and only the green tops of the trees which crowned it could be seen. After half an hour's rest the settlers resumed their journey, 
and not a spot among the rocks was left unexamined. Pencroft and Neb even rushed into the surf whenever any object attracted their attention. But they found nothing, some curious formations of the rocks having deceived them. They ascertained, however, that eatable shellfish abounded there. But these could not be of any great advantage to them, until some easy means of communication had been established between the two banks of the Mercy, and until the means of transport had been perfected. Nothing, therefore, which threw any light on the supposed wreck could be found on this shore, yet an object of any importance, such as the hull of a ship, would have been seen directly, or any of her masts and spars would have been washed on shore, just as the chest had been, which was found twenty miles from here. But there was nothing. Towards three o'clock Harding and his companions arrived at a snug little creek. It formed quite a natural harbour, invisible from the sea, and was entered by a narrow channel. At the back of this creek some violent convulsion had torn up the rocky border, and a cutting, by a gentle slope, gave access to an upper plateau, which might be situated at least ten miles from Claw Cape, and consequently four miles in a straight line from Prospect Heights. Gideon Spilett proposed to his companions that they should make a halt here. They agreed readily, for their walk had sharpened their appetites, and although it was not their usual dinner hour, no one refused to strengthen himself with a piece of venison. This luncheon would sustain them until their supper, which they intended to take at Granite House. In a few minutes the settlers, seated under a clump of fine sea-pines, were devouring the provisions which Neb produced from his bag. This spot was raised from fifty to sixty feet above the level of the sea. The view was very extensive, but beyond the cape it ended in Union Bay. Neither the islet nor Prospect Heights were visible, and could not be from thence, for the rising ground and the curtain of trees closed the northern horizon. It is useless to add that notwithstanding the wide extent of sea which the explorers could survey, and though the engineer swept the horizon with his glass, no vessel could be found. The shore was of course examined with the same care from the edge of the water to the cliff, and nothing could be discovered even with the aid of the instrument. "'Well,' said Gideon Spilett, "'it seems we must make up our minds to console ourselves with thinking that no one will come to dispute with us the possession of Lincoln Island.' "'But the bullet!' cried Herbert. "'That was not imaginary, I suppose.' "'Hang it, no!' exclaimed Pencroft, thinking of his absent tooth. "'Then what conclusion may be drawn?' asked the reporter. "'This,' replied the engineer, "'that three months or more ago a vessel, either voluntarily or not, came here.' "'What? Then you admit, Cyrus, that she was swallowed up without leaving any trace?' cried the reporter. "'No, my dear Spilett, but you see that if it is certain that a human being set foot on the island, it appears no less certain that he has now left it.' "'Then, if I understand you right, Captain,' said Herbert, "'the vessel is left again?' "'Evidently.' "'And we have lost an opportunity to get back to our country?' said Neb. "'I fear so.' "'Very well. Since the opportunity is lost,' "'Let us go on. It can't be helped,' said Pencroft, who felt homesickness for Granite House. But just as they were rising, 
Top was heard loudly barking, and the dog issued from the wood holding in his mouth a rag soiled with mud. Neb seized it. It was a piece of strong cloth. Top still barked, and by his going and coming seemed to invite his master to follow him into the forest. "'Now there's something to explain the bullet!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'A castaway!' replied Herbert. "'Wounded, perhaps,' said Neb. "'Or dead,' added the reporter. All ran after the dog, among the tall pines on the border of the forest. Harding and his companions made ready their firearms in case of an emergency. They advanced some way into the wood, but to their great disappointment they as yet saw no signs of any human being having passed that way. Shrubs and creepers were uninjured, and they had even to cut them away with the axe, as they had done in the deepest recesses of the forest. It was difficult to fancy that any human creature had ever passed there, but yet Top went backward and forward, not like a dog who searches at random but like a dog being endowed with a mind who is following up an idea. In about seven or eight minutes Top stopped in a glade surrounded with tall trees. The settlers gazed around them, but saw nothing, neither under the bushes nor among the trees. "'What is the matter, Top?' said Cyrus Harding. Top barked louder, bounding about at the foot of a gigantic pine. All at once Pencroft shouted, ho splendid capital what is it asked spilett we have been looking for a wreck at sea or on land well well and here we found one in the air and the sailor pointed to a great white rag caught in the top of the pine a fallen scrap of which the dog had brought to them but that is not a wreck cried gideon spilett i beg your pardon returned pencroft why is it it is all that remains of our airy boat of our balloon which has been caught up aloft there at the top of that tree pencroft was not mistaken and he gave vent to his feelings in a tremendous hurrah adding there is good cloth there is what will furnish us with linen for years there is what will make us handkerchiefs and shirts ha <laughs> ha mr spilett what do you say to an island where shirts grow on the trees it was certainly a lucky circumstance for the settlers in Lincoln Island that the balloon, after having made its last bound into the air, had fallen on the island, and thus given them the opportunity of finding it again. Whether they kept the case under its present form, or whether they wished to attempt another escape by it, or whether they usefully employed the several hundred yards of cotton, which was of fine quality. Pencroft's joy was therefore shared by all but it was necessary to bring down the remains of the balloon from the tree, to place it in security, and this was no slight task. Neb, Herbert, and the sailor, climbing to the summit of the tree, used all their skill to disengage the now reduced balloon. The operation lasted two hours, and then not only the case, with its valve, its springs, its brasswork, lay on the ground, but the net, that is to say a considerable quantity of ropes and cordage, and the circle and the anchor. The case, except for the fracture, was in good condition, only the lower portion being torn. It was a fortune which had fallen from the sky. "'All the same, Captain,' said the sailor. "'If we ever decide to leave the island, it won't be in a balloon, will it? These airboats won't go where we want them to go, 
and we have had some experience in that way. Look here, we will build a craft of some twenty tons, and then we can make a mainsail, a foresail, and a jib out of that cloth. As to the rest of it, that will help to dress us. We shall see, Pencroft, replied Cyrus Harding. We shall see. In the meantime, we must put it in a safe place, said Neb. They certainly could not think of carrying this load of cloth, ropes, and cordage to Granite House, for the weight of it was very considerable, and while waiting for a suitable vehicle in which to convey it, it was of importance that this treasure should not be left longer exposed to the mercies of the first storm. The settlers, uniting their efforts, managed to drag it as far as the shore, where they discovered a large rocky cavity, which, owing to its position, could not be visited either by the wind or rain. "'We needed a locker, and now we have one,' said Pencroft. "'But as we cannot lock it up, it will be prudent to hide the opening. I don't mean from two-legged thieves, but from those with four paws.' At six o'clock all was stowed away, and having given the creek the very suitable name of Port Balloon, the settlers pursued their way along Claw Cape. Pencroft and the engineer talked of the different projects which it was agreed to put into execution with the briefest possible delay. It was necessary, first of all, to throw a bridge over the Mercy, so as to establish an easy communication with the south of the island. Then the cart must be taken to bring back the balloon, for the canoe alone could not carry it. Then they would build a decked boat, and Pencroft would rig it as a cutter, and they would be able to undertake voyages of circumnavigation round the island, etc. In the meanwhile night came on, and it was already dark when the settlers reached Flotsam Point, where they had found the precious chest. The distance between Flotsam Point and Granite House was another four miles, and it was midnight when, after having followed the shore to the mouth of the Mercy, the settlers arrived at the first angle formed by the Mercy. There the river was eighty feet in breadth, which was awkward to cross, but as Pencroft had taken it upon himself to conquer this difficulty, he was compelled to do it. The settlers certainly had reason to be pretty tired. The journey had been long and the task of getting down the balloon had not rested either their arms or legs. They were anxious to reach Granite House to eat and sleep, and if the bridge had been constructed, in a quarter of an hour they would have been at home. The night was very dark. Pencroft prepared to keep his promise by constructing a sort of raft on which to make the passage of the Mercy. He and Neb, armed with axes, chose two trees near the water, and began to attack them at the base. Cyrus Harding and Spilett, seated on the bank, waited till their companions were ready for their help, while Herbert roamed about, although without going to any distance. All at once the lad, who had strolled by the river, came running back, and pointing up the mercy, exclaimed, "'What is floating there?' Pencroft stopped working, and, seeing an indistinct object moving through the gloom, "'A canoe!' cried he. All approached, and saw to their extreme surprise a boat floating down the current. "'Boat ahoy!' shouted the sailor, without thinking that perhaps it would be best to keep silence. No reply. The boat still drifted onward, and it was not more than twelve feet off, when the sailor exclaimed, "'But it is our own boat! She has broken her moorings and floated down the current! I must say she has arrived very opportunely!' "'Our boat?' 
murmured the engineer. Pencroft was right. It was indeed the canoe, of which the rope had undoubtedly broken, and which had come alone from the sources of the Mercy. It was very important to seize it before the rapid current should have swept it away out of the mouth of the river, but Neb and Pencroft cleverly managed this by means of a long pole. The canoe touched the shore. The engineer leaped in first, and found, on examining the rope, that it had been really worn through by rubbing against the rocks. "'Well,' said the reporter to him, in a low voice, "'this is a strange thing.' "'Strange indeed,' returned Cyrus Harding. Strange or not, it was very fortunate. Herbert, the reporter, Neb, and Pencroft embarked in turn. There was no doubt about the rope having been worn through but the astonishing part of the affair was that the boat should arrive just at the moment when the settlers were there to seize it on its way, for a quarter of an hour earlier or later it would have been lost in the sea. If they had been living in the time of genies, this incident would have given them the right to think that the island was haunted by some supernatural being who used his power in the service of the castaways. A few strokes of the oar brought the settlers to the mouth of the Mercy. The canoe was hauled up on the beach near the chimneys, and all proceeded towards the ladder of Granite House. But at that moment Top barked angrily, and Neb, who was looking for the first steps, uttered a cry. There was no longer a ladder. End of chapter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 2. Chapter 6. Cyrus Harding stood still without saying a word. His companions searched in the darkness on the wall, in case the wind should have moved the ladder, and on the ground, thinking that it might have fallen down. But the ladder had quite disappeared. As to ascertaining if a squall had blown it on the landing-place, halfway up, that was impossible in the dark. "'If it is a joke,' cried Pencroft, "'it is a very stupid one. To come home and find no staircase to go up to your room by, that's nothing for weary men to laugh at.' Ned could do nothing but cry out, "'Oh, oh, oh!' "'I begin to think that very curious things happen in Lincoln Island,' said Pencroft. "'Curious,' replied Gideon Spilett. "'Not at all, Pencroft. Nothing can be more natural. Someone has come during our absence, taken possession of our dwelling, and drawn up the ladder.' "'Someone!' cried the sailor. "'But who?' "'Who but the hunter who fired the bullet?' replied the reporter. "'Well, if there is anyone up there—' replied Pencroft, who began to lose patience. I will give them a hail, and they must answer. And in a stentorian voice the sailor gave a prolonged halloo, which was echoed again and again from the cliff and rocks. The settlers listened, and they thought they heard a sort of chuckling laugh, of which they could not guess the origin. But no voice replied to Pencroft, who in vain repeated his vigorous shouts. There was something indeed in this to astonish the most apathetic of men, and the settlers were not men of that description. In their situation every incident had its importance, 
and certainly, during the seven months which they had spent on the island, they had not before met with anything of so surprising a character. Be that as it may, forgetting their fatigue in the singularity of the event, they remained below Granite House, not knowing what to think, not knowing what to do, questioning each other without any hope of a satisfactory reply, every one starting some supposition each more unlikely than the last. Neb bewailed himself, much disappointed at not being able to get into his kitchen, for the provisions which they had on their expedition were exhausted, and they had no means of renewing them. "'My friends,' at last said Cyrus Harding, "'there is only one thing to be done at present. Wait for day, and then act according to circumstances. But let us go to the chimneys. There we shall be under shelter, and if we cannot eat, we can at least sleep.' "'But who is it that has played us this cool trick?' again asked Pencroft, unable to make up his mind to retire from the spot. Whoever it was, the only thing practicable was to do as the engineer proposed, to go to the chimneys and there wait for day. In the meanwhile, Top was ordered to mount guard below the windows of Granite House, and when Top received an order he obeyed it without any questioning. The brave dog therefore remained at the foot of the cliff while his master with his companions sought a refuge among the rocks. To say that the settlers, notwithstanding their fatigue, slept well on the sandy floor of the chimneys, would not be true. It was not only that they were extremely anxious to find out the cause of what had happened, whether it was the result of an accident which would be discovered at the return of day, or whether, on the contrary, it was the work of a human being, but they also had very uncomfortable beds. That could not be helped, however, for in some way or other, at that moment, their dwelling was occupied, and they could not possibly enter it. Now Granite House was more than their dwelling, it was their warehouse. There were all the stores belonging to the colony, weapons, instruments, tools, ammunition, provisions, etc. To think that all that might be pillaged, and that the settlers would have all their work to do over again, fresh weapons and tools to make, was a serious matter. Their uneasiness led one or other of them also to go out every few minutes to see if Top was keeping good watch. Cyrus Harding alone waited with his habitual patience, although his strong mind was exasperated at being confronted with such an inexplicable fact, and he was provoked at himself for allowing a feeling to which he could not give a name, to gain an influence over him. Gideon Spilett shared his feelings in this respect, and the two conversed together in whispers of the inexplicable circumstance which baffled even their intelligence and experience. "'It is a joke,' said Pencroft. "'It is a trick someone has played us. Well, I don't like such jokes, and the joker had better look out for himself if he falls into my hands, I can tell him.' As soon as the first gleam of light appeared in the east, the colonists, suitably armed, repaired to the beach under Granite House. The rising sun now shone on the cliff, and they could see the windows, the shutters of which were closed, through the curtains of foliage. All here was in order, but a cry escaped the colonists when they saw that the door, which they had closed on their departure, was now wide open. Someone had entered Granite House, there could be no more doubt about that. The upper ladder, which generally hung from the door to the landing, was in its place, but the lower ladder was drawn up and raised to the threshold. 
it was evident that the intruders had wished to guard themselves against a surprise. Pencroft hailed again. No reply. "'The beggars!' exclaimed the sailor. "'There they are, sleeping quietly, as if they were in their own house. Halloo there, you pirates, brigands, robbers, sons of John Bull!' When Pencroft, being a Yankee, treated anyone to the epithet of son of John Bull, he considered he had reached the last limits of insult. The sun had now completely risen, and the whole façade of Granite House became illuminated by its rays, but in the interior, as well as on the exterior, all was quiet and calm. The settlers asked if Granite House was inhabited or not, and yet the position of the latter was sufficient to show that it was. It was also certain that the inhabitants, whoever they might be, had not been able to escape. But how were they to be got at? Herbert then thought of fastening a cord to an arrow, and shooting the arrow so that it should pass between the first rounds of the ladder, which hung from the threshold. By means of the cord they would then be able to draw down the ladder to the ground, and so re-establish the communication between the beach and Granite House. There was evidently nothing else to be done, and, with a little skill, this method might succeed. Very fortunately, bows and arrows had been left at the chimneys, where they also found a quantity of light hibiscus cord. Pencroft fastened this to a well-feathered arrow. Then Herbert, fixing it to his bow, took a careful aim for the lower part of the ladder. Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, Pencroft, and Neb drew back, so as to see if anything appeared at the windows. The reporter lifted his gun to his shoulder and covered the door. The bow was bent, the arrow flew, taking the cord with it, and passed between the two last rounds. The operation had succeeded. Herbert immediately seized the end of the cord, but at that moment when he gave it a pull to bring down the ladder, an arm, thrust suddenly out between the wall and the door, grasped it and dragged it inside Granite House. "'The rascals!' shouted the sailor. "'If a ball can do anything for you, you shall not have long to wait for it.' "'Who was it?' asked Neb. "'Who was it? Didn't you see?' "'No.' "'It was a monkey, a sapajou, an orang-outang, a baboon, a gorilla, a saguin. Our dwelling has been invaded by monkeys, who climbed up the ladder during our absence.' And at this moment, as if to bear witness to the truth of the sailors' words, two or three quadrumana showed themselves at the windows, from which they had pushed back the shutters, and saluted the real proprietors of the place with a thousand hideous grimaces. "'I knew that it was only a joke,' cried Pencroft. "'But one of the jokers shall pay the penalty for the rest.' So saying, the sailor, raising his piece, took a rapid aim at one of the monkeys, and fired. All disappeared, except one who fell mortally wounded on the beach. This monkey, which was of a large size, evidently belonged to the first daughter of the Quadrumana. Whether this was a chimpanzee, an orang-outang, or a gorilla, he took rank among the anthropod apes, who are so called from their resemblance to the human race. However, Herbert declared it to be an orang-outang. "'What a magnificent beast!' cried Neb. "'Magnificent, if you like,' replied Pencroft. "'But still I do not see how we are to get into our house.' "'Herbert is a good marksman,' said the reporter and his bow is here. He can try again.' "'Why, these apes are so cunning,' returned Pencroft, 
They won't show themselves again at the windows, and so we can't kill them. And when I think of the mischief they may do in the rooms and storehouse— Have patience, replied Harding. These creatures cannot keep us long at bay. I shall not be sure of that till I see them down here, replied the sailor. And now, Captain, do you know how many dozens of these fellows are up there? It was difficult to reply to Pencroft, and as for the young boy making another attempt, that was not easy, for the lower part of the ladder had been drawn again into the door, and when another pull was given, the line broke, and the ladder remained firm. The case was really perplexing. Pencroft stormed. There was a comic side to the situation, but he did not think it funny at all. It was certain that the settlers would end by reinstating themselves in their domicile and driving out the intruders, but when and how, this is what they were not able to say. Two hours passed, during which the apes took care not to show themselves, but they were still there, and three or four times a nose or a paw was poked out at the door or windows, and was immediately saluted by a gunshot. "'Let us hide ourselves,' at last said the engineer. Perhaps the apes will think we have gone quite away, and will show themselves again. Let Spilett and Herbert conceal themselves behind those rocks, and fire on all that may appear. The engineer's orders were obeyed, and, while the reporter and the lad, the best marksman in the colony, posted themselves in a good position, but out of the monkey's sight, Neb, Pencroft, and Cyrus climbed the plateau, and entered the forest in order to kill some game for it was now time for breakfast, and they had no provisions remaining. In half an hour the hunters returned with a few rock-pigeons, which they roasted as well as they could. Not an ape had appeared. Gideon Spilett and Herbert went to take their share of the breakfast, leaving Top to watch under the windows. They then, having eaten, returned to their post. Two hours later their situation was in no degree improved. The quadrumana gave no sign of existence, and it might have been supposed that they had disappeared, but what seemed more probable was that, terrified by the death of one of their companions, and frightened by the noise of the firearms, they had retreated to the back part of the house, or probably even into the storeroom, and when they thought of the valuables which the storeroom contained, the patience so much recommended by the engineer, fast changed into great irritation and there certainly was room for it. "'Decidedly it is too bad,' said the reporter. "'And the worst of it is, there is no way of putting an end to it.' "'But we must drive these vagabonds out somehow,' cried the sailor. "'We could soon get the better of them, even if there are twenty of the rascals. But for that we must meet them hand to hand. Come now, is there no way of getting at them?' "'Let us try to enter Granite House by the old opening at the lake.' replied the engineer. "'Oh!' shouted the sailor. "'And I never thought of that!' This was in reality the only way by which to penetrate into Granite House, so as to fight with and drive out the intruders. The opening was, it is true, closed up with a wall of cemented stones, which it would be necessary to sacrifice, but that could easily be rebuilt. Fortunately, Cyrus Harding had not as yet effected his project of hiding this opening by raising the waters of the lake, for the operation would then have taken some time. It was already past twelve o'clock, when the colonists, well armed and provided with picks and spades, left the chimneys, passed beneath the windows of Granite House, 
after telling Top to remain at his post, and began to ascend the left bank of the Mercy, so as to reach Prospect Heights. But they had not made fifty steps in this direction when they heard the dog barking furiously, and all rushed down the bank again. Arriving at the turning, they saw that the situation had changed. In fact, the apes, seized with a sudden panic, from some unknown cause, were trying to escape. Two or three ran and clambered from one window to another with the agility of acrobats. They were not even trying to replace the ladder, by which it would have been easy to descend. Perhaps in their terror they had forgotten this way of escape. The colonists, now being able to take aim without difficulty, fired. Some, wounded or killed, fell back into the rooms, uttering piercing cries. The rest, throwing themselves out, were dashed to pieces in their fall, and in a few minutes, so far as they knew, there was not a living quadrumana in Granite House. At this moment the ladder was seen to slip over the threshold, then unroll and fall to the ground. "'Hello!' cried the sailor. "'This is queer!' "'Very strange!' murmured the engineer, leaping first up the ladder. "'Take care, Captain!' cried Pencroft. "'Perhaps there are still some of these rascals—' "'We shall soon see,' replied the engineer, without stopping, however. All his companions followed him, and in a minute they had arrived at the threshold. They searched everywhere. There was no one in the rooms, nor in the storehouse, which had been respected by the band of Quadrumana. "'Well, now, and the ladder!' cried the sailor. Who can the gentleman have been who sent us that down?" But at that moment a cry was heard, and a great orang, who had hidden himself in the passage, rushed into the room, pursued by Neb. "'Ah, the robber!' cried Pencroft. And, hatchet in hand, he was about to cleave the head of the animal, when Cyrus Harding seized his arm, saying, "'Spare him, Pencroft!' "'Pardon this rascal?' "'Yes, it was he who threw us the ladder.' and the engineer said this in such a peculiar voice that it was difficult to know whether he spoke seriously or not. Nevertheless, they threw themselves on the orang, who defended himself gallantly, but was soon overpowered and bound. There, said Pencroft, and what shall we make of him now we've got him? A servant, replied Herbert. The lad was not joking in saying this, for he knew how this intelligent race could be turned to account. The settlers then approached the ape and gazed at it attentively. He belonged to the family of anthropoid apes, of which the facial angle is not much inferior to that of the Australians and Hottentots. It was an orang outang, and as such had neither the ferocity of the gorilla nor the stupidity of the baboon. It is to this family of the anthropoid apes that so many characteristics belong which prove them to be possessed of an almost human intelligence. Employed in houses, they can wait at table, sweep rooms, brush clothes, clean boots, handle a knife, fork, and spoon properly, and even drink wine, doing everything as well as the best servant that ever walked upon two legs. Buffon possessed one of these apes, who served him for a long time as a faithful and zealous servant. The one which had been seized in the hall of Granite House was a great fellow, six feet high with an admirably proportioned frame, a broad chest, head of a moderate size, the facial angle reaching sixty-five degrees, round skull, projecting nose, skin covered with soft, glossy hair, in short, 
a fine specimen of the anthropoids. His eyes, rather smaller than human eyes, sparkled with intelligence, his white teeth glittered under his moustache, and he wore a little curly brown beard. "'A handsome fellow,' said Pencroft. "'If we only knew his language, we could talk to him.' "'But, Master,' said Neb, "'are you serious? Are we going to take him as a servant?' "'Yes, Neb,' replied the engineer, smiling. "'But you must not be jealous.' "'And I hope he will make an excellent servant,' added Herbert. "'He appears young, and will be easy to educate, and we shall not be obliged to use force to subdue him.' nor draw his teeth, as is sometimes done. He will soon grow fond of his masters, if they are kind to him." "'And they will be,' replied Pencroft, who had forgotten all his rancour against the jokers. Then, approaching the orang, "'Well, old boy,' he asked, "'how are you?' The orang replied by a little grunt, which did not show any anger. "'You wish to join the colony?' again asked the sailor. You are going to enter the service of Captain Cyrus Harding?" Another respondent grunt was uttered by the ape. "'And you will be satisfied with no other wages than your food?' Third affirmative grunt. "'This conversation is slightly monotonous,' observed Gideon Spilett. "'So much the better,' replied Pencroft. "'The best servants are those who talk the least. And then no wages do you hear, my boy? We will give you no wages at first, but we will double them afterwards if we are pleased with you.' Thus the colony was increased by a new member. As to his name, the sailor begged that in memory of another ape which he had known, he might be called Jupiter, and Jupe for short. And so, without more ceremony, Master Jupe was installed in Granite House. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part Two, Chapter Seven. The settlers in Lincoln Island had now regained their dwelling, without having been obliged to reach it by the old opening and were therefore spared the trouble of mason's work. It was certainly lucky that at the moment they were about to set out to do so, the apes had been seized with that terror, no less sudden than inexplicable, which had driven them out of Granite House. Had the animals discovered that they were about to be attacked from another direction? This was the only explanation of their sudden retreat. During the day the bodies of the apes were carried into the wood where they were buried. Then the settlers busied themselves in repairing the disorder caused by the intruders. Disorder, but not damage, for although they had turned everything in the rooms topsy-turvy, yet they had broken nothing. Neb relighted his stove, and the stores in the larder furnished a substantial repast, to which all did ample justice. Jupe was not forgotten, and he ate with relish some stone-pine almonds and rhizome roots, with which he was abundantly supplied. Pencroft had unfastened his arms, but judged it best to have his legs tied, until they were more sure of his submission. Then, before retiring to rest, Harding and his companions seated round their table, 
discussed those plans, the execution of which was most pressing. The most important and most urgent was the establishment of a bridge over the Mercy, so as to form a communication with the southern part of the island and Granite House. Then the making of an enclosure for the musmons or other woolly animals which they wished to capture. These two projects would help to solve the difficulty as to their clothing, which was now serious. The bridge would render easy the transport of the balloon case, which would furnish them with linen, and the inhabitants of the enclosure would yield wool, which would supply them with winter clothes. As to the enclosure, it was Cyrus Harding's intention to establish it at the sources of the Red Creek, where the ruminants would find fresh and abundant pasture. The road between Prospect Heights and the sources of the stream were already partly beaten, and with a better cart than the first, the material could be easily conveyed to the spot, especially if they could manage to capture some animals to draw it. But though there might be no inconvenience in the enclosure being so far from Granite House, it would not be the same with the poultry-yard, to which Neb called the attention of the colonists. It was indeed necessary that the birds should be close within reach of the cook, and no place appeared more favourable for the establishment of the said poultry-yard than that portion of the banks of the lake which was close to the old opening. Water-birds would prosper there as well as others, and the couple of titamus taken in their last excursion would be the first to be domesticated. The next day, the 3rd of November, the new works were begun by the construction of the bridge, and all hands were required for this important task. Saws, hatchets, and hammers were shouldered by the settlers, who, now transformed into carpenters, descended to the shore. There Pencroft observed, Suppose that during our absence Master Jupe takes it into his head to draw up the ladder which he so politely returned to us yesterday. Let us tie its lower end down firmly, replied Cyrus Harding. This was done by means of two stakes securely fixed in the sand. Then the settlers, ascending the left bank of the Mercy, soon arrived at the angle formed by the river. There they halted in order to ascertain if the bridge could be thrown across. The place appeared suitable. In fact, from this spot to Port Balloon, discovered the day before on the southern coast, there was only a distance of three miles and a half, and from the bridge to the port it would be easy to make a good cart road which would render the communication between Granite House and the south of the island extremely easy. Cyrus Harding now imparted to his companions a scheme for completely isolating Prospect Heights so as to shelter it from the attacks both of quadrupeds and quadrumana. In this way, Granite House, the chimneys, the poultry-yard, and all the upper part of the plateau which was to be used for cultivation would be protected against the depredations of animals. Nothing could be easier than to execute this project, and this is how the engineer intended to set to work. The plateau was already defended on three sides by watercourses, either artificial or natural. On the northwest, by the shores of Lake Grant, from the entrance of the passage to the breach made into the banks of the lake for the escape of the water. On the north, from this breach to the sea, by the new watercourse which had hollowed out a bed for itself across the plateau and shore, above and below the fall, and it would be enough to dig the bed of this creek a little deeper to make it impracticable for 
animals, on all the eastern border by the sea itself, from the mouth of the aforesaid creek to the mouth of the Mercy. Lastly, on the south, from the mouth to the turn of the Mercy, where the bridge was to be established. The western border of the plateau now remained between the turn of the river and the southern angle of the lake, a distance of about a mile, which was open to all comers. But nothing could be easier than to dig a broad, deep ditch, which could be filled from the lake, and the overflow of which would throw itself by a rapid fall into the bed of the Mercy. The level of the lake would, no doubt, be somewhat lowered by this fresh discharge of its waters, but Cyrus Harding had ascertained that the volume of water in the Red Creek was considerable enough to allow of the execution of this project. "'So then,' added the engineer, "'Prospect Heights will become a regular island, being surrounded with water on all sides, and only communicating with the rest of our domain by the bridge which we are about to throw across the Mercy. The two little bridges already established above and below the fall, and lastly, two other little bridges which must be constructed, one over the canal which I propose to dig, the other across the left bank of the Mercy. Now, if these bridges can be raised at will, Prospect Heights will be guarded from any surprise. The bridge was the most urgent work. Trees were selected, cut down, stripped of their branches, and cut into beams, joists, and planks. The end of the bridge which rested on the right bank of the Mercy was to be firm, but the other end, on the left bank, was to be movable, so that it might be raised by means of a counterpoise, as some canal bridges are managed. This was certainly a considerable work, and though it was skillfully conducted, it took some time, for the Mercy at this place was eighty feet wide. It was therefore necessary to fix piles in the bed of the river, so as to sustain the floor of the bridge, and establish a pile-driver to act on the tops of these piles, which would thus form two arches, and allow the bridge to support heavy loads. Happily there was no want of tools with which to shape the wood, nor of ironwork to make it firm, nor of the ingenuity of a man who had a marvellous knowledge of the work nor, lastly, the zeal of his companions, who in seven months had necessarily acquired great skill in the use of their tools. And it must be said that not the least skilful was Gideon Spilett, who in dexterity almost equalled the sailor himself. "'Who would have ever expected so much from a newspaper-man?' thought Pencroft. The construction of the Mercy Bridge lasted three weeks of regular hard work. They even breakfasted on the scene of their labours, and the weather being magnificent, they only returned to Granite House to sleep. During this period it may be stated that Master Jup grew more accustomed to his new masters, whose movements he always watched with very inquisitive eyes. However, as a precautionary measure, Pencroft did not as yet allow him complete liberty rightly wishing to wait until the limits of the plateau should be settled by the projected works. Top and Jup were good friends, and played willingly together, but Jup did everything solemnly. On the 20th of November the bridge was finished. The movable part, balanced by the counterpoise, swung easily, and only a slight effort was needed to raise it. Between its hinge and the last crossbar on which it rested when closed, there existed a space of twenty feet, 
which was sufficiently wide to prevent any animals from crossing. The settlers now began to talk of fetching the balloon case, which they were anxious to place in perfect security. But to bring it, it would be necessary to take a cart to Port Balloon, and consequently necessary to beat a road through the dense forests of the far west. This would take some time. Also, Neb and Pencroft having gone to examine into the state of things at Port Balloon, and reported that the stock of cloth would suffer no damage in the grotto where it was stored, it was decided that the work of Prospect Heights should not be discontinued. That, observed Pencroft, will enable us to establish our poultry-yard under better conditions, since we need have no fear of visits from foxes, nor the attacks of other beasts. Then, added Neb, we can clear the plateau, and transplant wild plants to it. "'And prepare our second cornfield!' cried the sailor, with a triumphant air. In fact, the first cornfield, sown with a single grain, had prospered admirably, thanks to Pencroft's care. It had produced the ten ears foretold by the engineer, and each ear contained eighty grains. The colony found itself in possession of eight hundred grains in six months, which promised a double harvest each year. These eight hundred grains, except fifty, which were prudently reserved, were to be sown in a new field, but with no less care than was bestowed on the single grain. The field was prepared, then surrounded by a strong palisade, high and pointed, which quadrupeds would have found difficulty in leaping. As to birds, some scarecrows, due to Pencroft's ingenious brain, were enough to frighten them. The seven hundred and fifty grains deposited in very regular furrows were then left for nature to do the rest. On the 21st of November Cyrus Harding began to plan the canal which was to close the plateau on the west, from the south angle of Lake Grant to the angle of the Mercy. There was there two or three feet of vegetable earth, and below that granite. It was therefore necessary to manufacture some more nitroglycerin, and the nitroglycerin did its accustomed work. In less than a fortnight a ditch, twelve feet wide and six deep, was dug out in the hard ground of the plateau. A new trench was made by the same means in the rocky border of the lake, forming a small stream, to which they gave the name of Creek Glycerin, and which was thus an affluent of the Mercy. As the engineer had predicted, the level of the lake was lowered, although very slightly. To complete the enclosure, the bed of the stream on the beach was considerably enlarged, and the sand supported by means of stakes. By the end of the first fortnight of December these works were finished, and Prospect Heights, that is to say, a sort of irregular pentagon, having a perimeter of nearly four miles, surrounded by a liquid belt, was completely protected from depredators of every description. During the month of December the heat was very great. In spite of it, however, the settlers continued their work, and as they were anxious to possess a poultry-yard they forthwith commenced it. It is useless to say that since the enclosing of the plateau had been completed, Master Jupe had been set at liberty. He did not leave his masters, and evinced no wish to escape. He was a gentle animal, although very powerful and wonderfully active. 
he was already taught to make himself useful by drawing loads of wood and carting away the stones which were extracted from the bed of Creek Glycerin. The poultry yard occupied an area of two hundred square yards on the southeastern bank of the lake. It was surrounded by a palisade, and in it were constructed various shelters for the birds which were to populate it. These were simply built of branches and divided into compartments, made ready for the expected guests. The first were the two tinamous, which were not long in having a number of young ones. They had for companions half a dozen ducks, accustomed to the borders of the lake. Some belonged to the Chinese species, of which the wings opened like a fan, and which by the brilliancy of their plumage rival the golden pheasants. A few days afterwards Herbert snared a couple of Galanaceae, with spreading tails composed of long feathers, magnificent electors, which soon became tame. As to pelicans, kingfishers, water-hens, they came of themselves to the shores of the poultry-yard, and this little community, after some disputes, cooing, screaming, clucking, ended by settling down peacefully, and increased in encouraging proportion for the future use of the colony. Cyrus Harding, wishing to complete his performance, established a pigeon-house in a corner of the poultry-yard. There he lodged a dozen of those pigeons which frequented the rocks of the plateau. These birds soon became accustomed to returning every evening to their new dwelling, and showed more disposition to domesticate themselves than their congeners, the wood-pigeons. Lastly, the time had come for turning the balloon-case to use, by cutting it up to make shirts and other articles. For as to keeping it in its present form, and risking themselves in a balloon filled with gas, above a sea of the limits of which they had no idea, it was not to be thought of. It was necessary to bring the case to Granite House and the colonists employed themselves in rendering their heavy cart lighter and more manageable. But though they had a vehicle, the moving power was yet to be found. And did there not exist in the island some animal which might supply the place of the horse, ass, or ox? That was the question. Certainly, said Pencroft, a beast of burden would be very useful to us, until the captain has made a steam-cart or even an engine, for some day we shall have a railroad from Granite House to Port Balloon, with a branch line to Mount Franklin. One day, the 23rd of December, Neb and Top were heard shouting and barking, each apparently trying to see who could make the most noise. The settlers, who were busy at the chimneys, ran, fearing some vexatious incident. What did they see? Two fine animals of a large size that had imprudently ventured on the plateau when the bridges were open. One would have said they were horses, or at least donkeys, male and female, of a fine shape, dove-colored, the legs and tail white, striped with black on the head and neck. They advanced quietly without showing any uneasiness, and gazed at the men, in whom they could not as yet recognize their future masters. "'These are onagers!' cried Herbert. "'Animals something between the zebra and the quagga!' "'Why not donkeys?' asked Neb. "'Because they have not long ears, and their shape is more graceful.' "'Donkeys are horses,' interrupted Pencroft. 
They are moving powers, as the captain would say, and as such must be captured. The sailor, without frightening the animals, crept through the grass to the bridge over Creek Glycerin, lowered it, and the onagers were prisoners. Now, should they seize them with violence and master them by force? No. It was decided that for a few days they should be allowed to roam freely about the plateau, where there was an abundance of grass, and the engineer immediately began to prepare a stable near the poultry-yard, in which the onagers might find food, with a good litter and shelter during the night. This done, the movements of the two magnificent creatures were left entirely free, and the settlers avoided even approaching them so as not to terrify them. Several times, however, the onagers appeared to wish to leave the plateau, too confined for animals accustomed to the plains and forests. They were then seen following the water-barrier which everywhere presented itself before them, uttering short neighs, then galloping through the grass, and, becoming calmer, they would remain entire hours gazing at the woods, from which they were cut off for ever. In the meantime harness of vegetable fibre had been manufactured, and some days after the capture of the onagers, not only the cart was ready, but a straight road, or rather a cutting, had been made through the forests of the far west, from the angle of the Mercy to Port Balloon. The cart might then be driven there, and towards the end of December they tried the onagers for the first time. Pencroft had already coaxed the animals to come and eat out of his hand, and they allowed him to approach without making any difficulty. But once harnessed, they reared and could with difficulty be held in. However, it was not long before they submitted to this new service, for the onager, being less refractory than the zebra, is frequently put in harness in the mountainous regions of southern Africa and it has even been acclimatized in Europe under zones of a relative coolness. On this day all the colony, except Bancroft, who walked at the animals' heads, mounted the cart and set out on the road to Port Balloon. Of course they were jolted over the somewhat rough road, but the vehicle arrived without any accident, and was soon loaded with the case and rigging of the balloon. At eight o'clock that evening the cart, after passing over the Mercy Bridge, descended the left bank of the river and stopped on the beach. The onagers being unharnessed were thence led to their stable, and Pencroft, before going to sleep, gave vent to his feelings in a deep sigh of satisfaction that awoke all the echoes of Granite House. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 2, Chapter 8. The first week of January was devoted to the manufacture of the linen garments required by the colony. The needles found in the box were used by sturdy, if not delicate, fingers, and we may be sure that what was sewn was sewn firmly. There was no lack of thread, thanks to Cyrus Harding's idea of re-employing that which had already been used in the covering of the balloon. 
This, with admirable patience, was all unpicked by Gideon Spilett and Herbert, for Pencroft had been obliged to give this work up, as it irritated him beyond measure. But he had no equal in the sewing part of the business. Indeed, everybody knows that sailors have a remarkable aptitude for tailoring. The cloth of which the balloon case was made was then cleaned by means of soda and potash, obtained by the incineration of plants, in such a way that the cotton, having got rid of the varnish, resumed its natural softness and elasticity. Then, exposed to the action of the atmosphere, it soon became perfectly white. Some dozen shirts and socks, the latter not knitted, of course, but made of cotton, were thus manufactured. What a comfort it was to the settlers to clothe themselves again in clean linen, which was doubtless rather rough, but they were not troubled about that. And then to go to bed between sheets, which made the couches at Granite House into quite comfortable beds. It was about this time also that they made boots of seal-leather, which were greatly needed to replace the shoes and boots brought from America. We may be sure that these new shoes were large enough and never pinched the feet of the wearers. With the beginning of the year 1866 the heat was very great, but the hunting in the forest did not stand still. Agoutis, peccaries, capybaras, kangaroos, game of all sorts, actually swarmed there, and Spilett and Herbert were too good marksmen ever to throw away their shot uselessly. Cyrus Harding still recommended them to husband the ammunition, and he took measures to replace the powder and shot which had been found in the box, and which he wished to reserve for the future. How did he know where chance might one day cast his companions and himself in the event of their leaving their domain? They should, then, prepare for the unknown future by husbanding their ammunition, and by substituting for it some easily renewable substance. To replace lead, of which Harding had found no traces in the island, he employed granulated iron, which was easy to manufacture. These bullets, not having the weight of leaden bullets, were made larger, and each charge contained less, but the skill of the sportsman made up this deficiency. As to powder, Cyrus Harding would have been able to make that also, for he had at his disposal saltpetre, sulphur, and coal. But this preparation requires extreme care, and without special tools it is difficult to produce it of a good quality. Harding preferred, therefore, to manufacture pyroxyl, that is to say, gun-cotton, a substance in which cotton is not indispensable, as the elementary tissue of vegetables may be used, and this is found in an almost pure state, not only in cotton, but in the textile fibres of hemp and flax, in paper, the pith of the elder, etc. Now the elder abounded in the island towards the mouth of Red Creek, and the colonists had already made coffee of the berries of these shrubs, which belonged to the family of the Caprifoliaceae. The only thing to be collected, therefore, was elder pith, for as to the other substance necessary for the manufacture of pyroxyl, it was only fuming azotic acid. Now, Harding, having sulfuric acid at his disposal, had already been easily able to produce azotic acid by attacking the saltpetre with which nature supplied him. He accordingly resolved to manufacture and employ pyroxyl, though it has some inconveniences, that is to say, a great inequality of effect, an excessive inflammability, since it takes fire at 170 degrees instead of 240, 
and lastly, an instantaneous deflagration which might damage the firearms. On the other hand, the advantages of pyroxyl consist in this, that it is not injured by damp, that it does not make the gun barrels dirty, and that its force is four times that of ordinary powder. To make pyroxyl, the cotton must be immersed in the fuming azotic acid for a quarter of an hour, then washed in cold water and dried. Nothing could be more simple. Cyrus Harding had only at his disposal the ordinary azotic acid, and not the fuming or monohydrate azotic acid, that is to say, acid which emits white vapors when it comes in contact with damp air, but by substituting for the latter ordinary azotic acid mixed in the proportion of from three to five volumes of concentrated sulfuric acid, the engineer obtained the same result. The sportsmen of the island therefore soon had a perfectly prepared substance, which, employed discreetly, produced admirable results. About this time the settlers cleared three acres at the plateau, and the rest was preserved in a wild state for the benefit of the onagers. Several excursions were made into the Jacamar woods and forests of the far west, and they brought back from thence a large collection of wild vegetables, spinach, cress, radishes, and turnips, which careful culture would soon improve, and which would temper the regimen on which the settlers had till then subsisted. Supplies of wood and coal were also carted. Each excursion was at the same time a means of improving the roads, which gradually became smoother under the wheels of the cart. The rabbit warren still continued to supply the larder of Granite House. As fortunately it was situated on the other side of Creek Glycerin, its inhabitants could not reach the plateau, nor ravage the newly made plantation. The oyster bed among the rocks was frequently renewed, and furnished excellent mollusks. Besides that, the fishing, either in the lake or the Mercy, was very profitable, for Pencroft had made some lines, armed with iron hooks, with which he frequently caught fine trout and a species of fish whose silvery sides were speckled with yellow, and which were also extremely savoury. Master Neb, who was skilled in the culinary art, knew how to vary agreeably the bill of fare. Bread alone was wanting at the table of the settlers, and, as has been said, they felt this privation greatly. The settlers hunted, too, the turtles which frequented the shores of Cape Mandible. At this place the beach was covered with little mounds, concealing perfectly spherical turtles' eggs, with white hard shells, the albumen of which does not coagulate as that of birds' eggs. They were hatched by the sun, and their number was naturally considerable, as each turtle can lay annually two hundred and fifty. "'A regular egg-field,' observed Gideon Spilett, "'and we have nothing to do but to pick them up.' but not being contented with simply the produce, they made chase after the producers, the result of which was that they were able to bring back to Granite House a dozen of these Kelonians, which were really valuable from an elementary point of view. The turtle soup, flavored with aromatic herbs, often gained well-merited praises for its preparer, Neb. We must here mention another fortunate circumstance by which new stores for the winter were laid in. Shoals of salmon entered the Mercy, and ascended the country for several miles. It was the time at which the females, going to find suitable places in which to spawn,
precede the males and make a great noise through the fresh water. A thousand of these fish, which measured about two feet and a half in length, came up the river, and a large quantity were retained by fixing dams across the stream. More than a hundred were thus taken, which were salted and stored for the time when winter, freezing up the streams, would render fishing impracticable. By this time the intelligent jupe was raised to the duty of valet. He had been dressed in a jacket, white linen breeches, and an apron, the pockets of which were his delight. The clever orang had been marvellously trained by Neb, and any one would have said that the negro and the ape understood each other when they talked together. Jupe had besides a real affection for Neb, and Neb returned it. When his services were not required, either for carrying wood or for climbing to the top of some tree, Jupe passed the greatest part of his time in the kitchen, where he endeavoured to imitate Neb in all that he saw him do. The black showed the greatest patience, and even extreme zeal in instructing his pupil, and the pupil exhibited remarkable intelligence in profiting by the lessons he received from his master. Judge, then, of the pleasure Master Jupe gave to the inhabitants of Granite House when, without their having had any idea of it, he appeared one day, napkin on his arm, ready to wait at table. Quick, attentive, he acquitted himself perfectly, changing the plates, bringing dishes, pouring out water, all with a gravity which gave intense amusement to the settlers, and which enraptured Pencroft. Jupe, some soup! Jupe, a little agouti! Jupe, a plate! Jupe, good Jupe, honest Jupe! Nothing was heard but that, and Jupe, without ever being disconcerted, replied to every one, watch for everything, and he shook his head in a knowing way when Pencroft, referring to his joke of the first day, said to him, Decidedly, Jupe, your wages must be doubled. It is useless to say that the orang was now thoroughly domesticated at Granite House, and that he often accompanied his masters to the forest without showing any wish to leave them. It was most amusing to see him walking with a stick which Pencroft had given him, and which he carried on his shoulder like a gun. If they wished to gather some fruit from the summit of a tree, how quickly he climbed for it! If the wheel of the cart stuck in the mud, with what energy did Jupe, with a single heave of his shoulder, put it right again? "'What a jolly fellow he is!' cried Pencroft often. "'If he was as mischievous as he is good, there would be no doing anything with him.' It was towards the end of January the colonists began their labours in the centre of the island. It had been decided that a corral should be established near the sources of the Red Creek, at the foot of Mount Franklin, destined to contain the ruminants, whose presence would have been troublesome at Granite House, and especially for the musmons, who were to supply the wool for the settlers' winter garments. Each morning the colony, sometimes entire, but more often represented only by Harding, Herbert, and Pencroft, proceeded to the sources of the creek, a distance of not more than five miles, by the newly beaten road to which the name of Corral Road had been given. There a site was chosen, at the back of the southern ridge of the mountain. It was a meadow-land, dotted here and there with clumps of trees, and watered by a little stream, which sprung from the slopes which closed it in on one side. The grass was fresh, and it was not too much shaded by the trees which grew about it. 
This meadow was to be surrounded by a palisade, high enough to prevent even the most agile animals from leaping over. This enclosure would be large enough to contain a hundred musmons and wild goats, with all the young ones they might produce. The perimeter of the corral was then traced by the engineer, and they would have proceeded to fell the trees necessary for the construction of the palisade, but as the opening up of the road had already necessitated the sacrifice of a considerable number, those were brought and supplied a hundred stakes, which were firmly fixed in the ground. At the front part of the palisade a large entrance was reserved, and closed with strong folding doors. The construction of this corral did not take less than three weeks, for besides the palisade Cyrus Harding built large sheds, in which the animals could take shelter. These buildings had also to be made very strong, for musmons are powerful animals, and their first fury was to be feared. The stakes, sharpened at their upper end and hardened by fire, had been fixed by means of crossbars, and at regular distances props assured the solidity of the whole. The corral finished, a raid had to be made on the pastures frequented by the ruminants. This was done on the 7th of February, on a beautiful summer's day, and everyone took part in it. The onagers, already well trained, were ridden by Spilett and Herbert, and were of great use. The manoeuvre consisted simply in surrounding the musmons and goats, and gradually narrowing the circle around them. Cyrus Harding, Pencroft, Neb, and Jupe posted themselves in different parts of the wood, while the two cavaliers and Top galloped in a radius of half a mile round the corral. The musmons were very numerous in this part of the island. These fine animals were as large as deer, their horns were stronger than those of the ram, and their grey-coloured fleece was mixed with long hair. This hunting day was very fatiguing. Such going and coming, and running and riding and shouting! Of a hundred musmons which had been surrounded, more than two-thirds escaped, but at last thirty of these animals and ten wild goats were gradually driven back towards the corral, the open door of which, appearing to offer a means of escape, they rushed in, and were prisoners. In short, the result was satisfactory, and the settlers had no reason to complain. There was no doubt that the flock would prosper and that at no distant time not only wool, but hides would be abundant. That evening the hunters returned to Granite House quite exhausted. However, notwithstanding their fatigue, they returned the next day to visit the corral. The prisoners had been trying to overthrow the palisade, but of course had not succeeded, and were not long in becoming more tranquil. During the month of February no event of any importance occurred. The daily labors were pursued methodically, and, as well as improving the roads to the corral and to Port Balloon, a third was commenced, which, starting from the enclosure, proceeded towards the western coast. The yet unknown portion of Lincoln Island was that of the wood-covered Serpentine Peninsula, which sheltered the wild beasts, from which Gideon Spilett was so anxious to clear their domain. Before the cold season should appear, the most assiduous care was given to the cultivation of the wild plants which had been transplanted from the forest to Prospect Heights. Herbert never returned from an excursion without bringing home some useful vegetable. One day it was some specimens of the chicory tribe, the seeds of which by pressure yield an excellent oil.
Another, it was some common sorrel, whose anti-scorbutic qualities were not to be despised. Then, some of those precious tubers, which have at all times been cultivated in South America, potatoes, of which more than two hundred species are now known. The kitchen garden, now well stocked and carefully defended from the birds, was divided into small beds, where grew lettuces, kidney potatoes, sorrel, turnips, radishes, and other cruciferae. The soil on the plateau was particularly fertile, and it was hoped that the harvest would be abundant. They had also a variety of different beverages, and so long as they did not demand wine, the most hard to please would have had no reason to complain. To the Oswego tea, and the fermented liquor extracted from the roots of the dragonier, Harding had added a regular beer, made from the young shoots of the spruce fir, which, after having been boiled and fermented, made that agreeable drink called by the Anglo-Americans spring-beer. Towards the end of the summer the poultry-yard was possessed of a couple of fine bustards, which belonged to the hubara species, characterized by a sort of feathery mantle. A dozen shovelers, whose upper mandible was prolonged on each side by a membraneous appendage, and also some magnificent cocks, similar to the Mozambique cocks, the comb, caruncle, and epidermis being black. So far everything had succeeded, thanks to the activity of these courageous and intelligent men. Nature did much for them, doubtless, but faithful to the great precept, they made a right use of what a bountiful providence gave them. After the heat of these warm summer days, in the evening when their work was finished and the sea breeze began to blow, they liked to sit on the edge of Prospect Heights, in a sort of veranda, covered with creepers, which Neb had made with his own hands. There they talked, they instructed each other, they made plans, and the rough good humour of the sailor always amused this little world, in which the most perfect harmony had never ceased to reign. They often spoke of their country, of their dear and great America. What was the result of the War of Secession? It could not have been greatly prolonged. Richmond had doubtless soon fallen into the hands of General Grant. The taking of the capital of the Confederates must have been the last action of this terrible struggle. Now the North had triumphed in the good cause, how welcome would have been a newspaper to the exiles in Lincoln Island! For eleven months all communication between them and the rest of their fellow-creatures had been interrupted, and in a short time the twenty-fourth of March would arrive, the anniversary of the day on which the balloon had thrown them on this unknown coast. They were then mere castaways, not even knowing how they should preserve their miserable lives from the fury of the elements. And now, thanks to the knowledge of their captain, and their own intelligence, they were regular colonists, furnished with arms, tools, and instruments. They had been able to turn to their profit the animals, plants, and minerals of the island, that is to say, the three kingdoms of nature. Yes, they often talked of all these things, and formed still more plans. As to Cyrus Harding, he was for the most part silent and listened to his companions more often than he spoke to them. Sometimes he smiled at Herbert's ideas, or Pencroft's nonsense, but always and everywhere he pondered over those inexplicable facts, that strange enigma of which the secret 
still escaped him. End of chapter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 2, Chapter 9. The weather changed during the first week of March. There had been a full moon at the commencement of the month, and the heat was excessive. The atmosphere was felt to be full of electricity, and a period of some length of tempestuous weather was to be feared. Indeed, on the second, peals of thunder were heard, the wind blew from the east, and hail rattled against the façade of Granite House like volleys of grape-shot. The door and windows were immediately closed, or everything in the rooms would have been drenched. On seeing these hailstones, some of which were the size of a pigeon's egg, Pencroft's first thought was, that his cornfield was in serious danger. He directly rushed to his field, where little green heads were already appearing, and by means of a great cloth he managed to protect his crop. This bad weather lasted a week, during which time the thunder rolled without cessation in the depths of the sky. The colonists, not having any pressing work out of doors, profited by the bad weather to work at the interior of Granite House, the arrangement of which was becoming more complete from day to day. The engineer made a turning lathe, with which he turned several articles both for the toilet and the kitchen, particularly buttons, the want of which was greatly felt. A gun-rack had been made for the firearms, which were kept with extreme care, and neither tables nor cupboards were left incomplete. They sawed, they planed, they filed, they turned, and during the whole of this bad season nothing was heard but the grinding of tools or the humming of the turning-lathe which responded to the growling of the thunder. Master Jupe had not been forgotten, and he occupied a room at the back, near the storeroom, a sort of cabin with a cot always full of good litter, which perfectly suited his taste. "'With good old Jupe there's never any quarrelling,' often repeated Pencroft. "'Never any improper reply. What a servant, Neb, what a servant!' Of course, Jupe was now well used to service. He brushed their clothes, he turned the spit, he waited at table, he swept the rooms, he gathered wood, and he performed another admirable piece of service which delighted Pencroft. He never went to sleep without first coming to tuck up the worthy sailor in his bed. As to the health of the members of the colony, bipeds or bimana, quadrumana or quadrupeds, it left nothing to be desired. With their life in the open air, on this salubrious soil, under that temperate zone, working both with head and hands, they could not suppose that illness would ever attack them. All were indeed wonderfully well. Herbert had already grown two inches in the year. His figure was forming and becoming more manly, and he promised to be an accomplished man, physically as well as morally. Besides, he improved himself during the leisure hours which manual occupations left to him. He read the books found in the case, and after the practical lessons which were taught by the very necessity of their position, he found in the engineer for science, and the reporter for languages, 
masters who were delighted to complete his education. The tempest ended about the ninth of March, but the sky remained covered with clouds during the whole of this last summer month. The atmosphere, violently agitated by the electric commotions, could not recover its former purity, and there was almost invariably rain and fog, except for three or four fine days on which several excursions were made. About this time the female onager gave birth to a young one which belonged to the same sex as its mother, and which throve capitally. In the corral the flock of musmons had also increased, and several lambs already bleated in the sheds, to the great delight of Neb and Herbert, who had each their favourite among these newcomers. An attempt was also made for the domestication of the peccaries, which succeeded well. A sty was constructed under the poultry-yard, and soon contained several young ones in the way to become civilized, that is to say, to become fat under Neb's care. Master Jupe, entrusted with carrying them their daily nourishment, leavings from the kitchen, etc., acquitted himself conscientiously of his task. He sometimes amused himself at the expense of his little pensioners by tweaking their tails, but this was mischief and not wickedness, for these little twisted tails amused him like a plaything, and his instinct was that of a child. One day in this month of March, Pencroft, talking to the engineer, reminded Cyrus Harding of a promise which the latter had not as yet had time to fulfil. "'You once spoke of an apparatus which would take the place of the long ladders at Granite House, Captain,' said he. "'Won't you make it some day?' "'Nothing will be easier. But is this a really useful thing?' "'Certainly, Captain. After we have given ourselves necessaries, let us think a little of luxury. For us it may be luxury, if you like, but for things it is necessary. It isn't very convenient to climb up a long ladder when one is heavily loaded.' "'Well, Pencroft, we will try to please you,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'But you have no machine at your disposal.' "'We will make one.' "'A steam machine?' "'No, a water machine.' And, indeed, to work his apparatus there was already a natural force at the disposal of the engineer, which could be used without great difficulty. For this it was enough to augment the flow of the little stream which supplied the interior of Granite House with water. The opening among the stones and grass was then increased, thus producing a strong fall at the bottom of the passage, the overflow from which escaped by the inner well. Below this fall the engineer fixed a cylinder with paddles, which was joined on the exterior with a strong cable rolled on a wheel, supporting a basket. In this way, by means of a long rope reaching to the ground, which enabled them to regulate the motive power, they could rise in the basket to the door of Granite House. It was on the 17th of March that the lift acted for the first time, and gave universal satisfaction. Henceforward all the loads, wood, coal, provisions, and even the settlers themselves, were hoisted by this simple system, which replaced the primitive ladder and, as may be supposed, no one thought of regretting the change. Top particularly was enchanted with this improvement, for he had not, and never could, have possessed Master Jupe's skill in climbing ladders, and often it was on Neb's back, or even on that of the orang, that he had been obliged to make the ascent to Granite House. 
About this time, too, Cyrus Harding attempted to manufacture glass, and he at first put the old pottery kiln to this new use. There were some difficulties to be encountered, but, after several fruitless attempts, he succeeded in getting up a glass manufactory, which Gideon Spilett and Herbert, his usual assistants, did not leave for several days. As to the substances used in the composition of glass, they are simply sand, chalk, and soda, either carbonate or sulphate. Now the beach supplied sand, lime supplied chalk, seaweeds supplied soda, pyrites supplied sulfuric acid, and the ground supplied coal to heat the kiln to the wished-for temperature. Cyrus Harding thus soon had everything ready for setting to work. The tool, the manufacture of which presented the most difficulty, was the pipe of the glassmaker, an iron tube five or six feet long, which collects on one end the material in a state of fusion. But by means of a long, thin piece of iron rolled up like the barrel of a gun, Pencroft succeeded in making a tube soon ready for use. On the 28th of March the tube was heated. A hundred parts of sand, thirty-five of chalk, forty of sulphate of soda, mixed with two or three parts of powdered coal, composed the substance, which was placed in crucibles. When the high temperature of the oven had reduced it to a liquid, or rather a pasty state, Cyrus Harding collected with the tube a quantity of the paste. He turned it about on a metal plate, previously arranged, so as to give it a form suitable for blowing. Then he passed the tube to Herbert, telling him to blow at the other extremity. And Herbert, swelling out his cheeks, blew so much and so well into the tube, taking care to twirl it round at the same time, that his breath dilated the glassy mass. Other quantities of the substance in a state of fusion were added to the first, and in a short time the result was a bubble which measured a foot in diameter. Harding then took the tube out of Herbert's hands, and giving it a pendulous motion, he ended by lengthening the malleable bubble so as to give it a cylindro-conic shape. The blowing operation had given a cylinder of glass terminated by two hemispheric caps, which were easily detached by means of a sharp iron dipped in cold water. Then, by the same proceeding, this cylinder was cut lengthwise, and after having been rendered malleable by a second heating, it was extended on a plate and spread out with a wooden roller. The first pane was thus manufactured, and they had only to perform this operation fifty times to have fifty panes. The windows at Granite House were soon furnished with panes, not very white, perhaps, but still sufficiently transparent. As to bottles and tumblers, that was only play. They were satisfied with them besides, just as they came from the end of the tube. Pencroft had asked to be allowed to blow in his turn, and it was great fun for him, but he blew so hard that his productions took the most ridiculous shapes, which he admired immensely. Cyrus Harding and Herbert, while hunting one day, had entered the forest of the far west, on the left bank of the Mercy, and, as usual, the lad was asking a thousand questions of the engineer, who answered them heartily. Now, as Harding was not a sportsman, and as, on the other side, Herbert was talking chemistry and natural philosophy, 
numbers of kangaroos, capybaras, and agoutis came within range, which, however, escaped the lad's gun. The consequence was that the day was already advanced, and the two hunters were in danger of having made a useless excursion, when Herbert, stopping, and uttering a cry of joy, exclaimed, "'Oh, Captain Harding, do you see that tree?' And he pointed to a shrub, rather than a tree, for it was composed of a single stem, covered with a scaly bark, which bore leaves streaked with little parallel veins. "'And what is this tree which resembles a little palm?' asked Harding. "'It is a Cycus revoluta, of which I have a picture in our Dictionary of Natural History,' said Herbert. "'But I can't see any fruit on this shrub,' observed his companion. "'No, Captain,' replied Herbert but its stem contains a flower with which nature has provided us already ground. It is, then, the bread-tree? Yes, the bread-tree. Well, my boy, replied the engineer, this is a valuable discovery, since our wheat harvest is not yet ripe. I hope that you are not mistaken. Herbert was not mistaken. He broke the stem of a cycas, which was composed of a glandulous tissue containing a quantity of flowery pith, traversed with woody fibre, separated by rings of the same substance, arranged concentrically. With this fecula was mingled a mucilaginous juice of disagreeable flavour, but which it would be easy to get rid of by pressure. This cellular substance was regular flour of a superior quality, extremely nourishing. Its exportation was formerly forbidden by the Japanese laws. Cyrus Harding and Herbert, after having examined that part of the far west where the cycus grew, took their bearings, and returned to Granite House, where they made known their discovery. The next day the settlers went to collect some, and returned to Granite House with an ample supply of cycus stems. The engineer constructed a press, with which to extract the mucilaginous juice mingled with the fecula, and he obtained a large quantity of flour which Neb soon transformed into cakes and puddings. This was not quite real wheaten bread, but it was very like it. Now, too, the onager, the goats, and the sheep in the corral furnished daily the milk necessary to the colony. The cart, or rather a sort of light carriole which had replaced it, made frequent journeys to the corral, and when it was Pencroft's turn to go he took Jupe, and let him drive, and Jupe, cracking his whip, acquitted himself with his customary intelligence. Everything prospered, as well in the corral as in Granite House, and certainly the settlers, if it had not been that they were so far from their native land, had no reason to complain. They were so well suited to this life, and were, besides, so accustomed to the island, that they could not have left its hospitable soil without regret and yet so deeply is the love of his country implanted in the heart of man, that if a ship had unexpectedly come in sight of the island, the colonists would have made signals, would have attracted her attention, and would have departed. It was the first of April, a Sunday, Easter day, which Harding and his companions sanctified by rest and prayer. The day was fine, such as an October day in the northern hemisphere might be. All, towards the evening after dinner, 
were seated under the veranda on the edge of Prospect Heights, and they were watching the darkness creeping up from the horizon. Some cups of the infusion of elderberries, which took the place of coffee, had been served by Neb. They were speaking of the island and of its isolated situation in the Pacific, which led Gideon Spilett to say, "'My dear Cyrus, have you ever, since you possess the sextant found in the case, again taken the position of our island?' "'No,' replied the engineer. "'But it would perhaps be a good thing to do it with this instrument, which is more perfect than that which you before used.' "'What is the good?' said Pencroft. The island is quite comfortable where it is. Well, who knows, returned the reporter. Who knows but that we may be much nearer inhabited land than we think? We shall know to-morrow, replied Cyrus Harding. And if it had not been for the occupations which left me no leisure, we should have known it already. Good, said Pencroft. The captain is too good an observer to be mistaken, and if it has not moved from its place— the island is just where he put it. We shall see. On the next day, therefore, by means of the sextant, the engineer made the necessary observations to verify the position which he had already obtained, and this was the result of his operation. His first observation had given him the situation of Lincoln Island, in west longitude, from 150 to 155 degrees. In south latitude, from thirty to thirty-five degrees. The second gave exactly, in longitude, one hundred fifty degrees thirty minutes. In south latitude, thirty-four degrees fifty-seven minutes. So then, notwithstanding the imperfection of his apparatus, Cyrus Harding had operated with so much skill that his error did not exceed five degrees. Now, said Gideon Spilett, since we possess an atlas, as well as a sextant, let us see, my dear Cyrus, the exact position which Lincoln Island occupies in the Pacific. Herbert fetched the atlas, and the map of the Pacific was opened, and the engineer, compass in hand, prepared to determine their position. Suddenly the compasses stopped, and he exclaimed, "'But an island exists in this part of the Pacific already!' "'An island?' cried Pencroft. Tabor Island. An important island? No, an islet lost in the Pacific, and which perhaps has never been visited. Well, we will visit it, said Pencroft. We? Yes, Captain. We will build a decked boat, and I will undertake to steer her. At what distance are we from this Tabor Island? About a hundred and fifty miles to the northeast, replied Harding. A hundred and fifty miles! "'And what's that?' returned Pencroft. "'In forty-eight hours, with a good wind, we should sight it.' And, on this reply, it was decided that a vessel should be constructed in time to be launched towards the month of next October, on the return of the fine season. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island 
by Jules Verne. Part two, chapter ten. When Pencroft had once got a plan in his head, he had no peace till it was executed. Now he wished to visit Tabor Island, and as a boat of a certain size was necessary for this voyage, he determined to build one. What wood should he employ? Elm or fir, both of which abounded in the island? They decided for the fir, as being easy to work, but that stands water as well as the elm. These details settled, it was agreed that since the fine season would not return before six months, Cyrus Harding and Pencroft should work alone at the boat. Gideon Spilett and Herbert were to continue to hunt, and neither Neb nor Master Jupe, his assistant, were to leave the domestic duties which had devolved upon them. Directly the trees were chosen, they were felled, stripped of their branches, and sawn into planks as well as sawyers would have been able to do it. A week after, in the recess between the chimneys and the cliff, a dockyard was prepared, and a keel five and thirty feet long, furnished with a stern-post at the stern, and a stem at the bows, lay along the sand. Cyrus Harding was not working in the dark at this new trade. He knew as much about shipbuilding as about nearly everything else, and he had at first drawn the model of his ship on paper. Besides, he was ably seconded by Pencroft, who, having worked for several years in a dockyard in Brooklyn, knew the practical part of the trade. It was not until after careful calculation and deep thought that the timbers were laid on the keel. Pencroft, as may be believed, was all eagerness to carry out his new enterprise, and would not leave his work for an instant. A single thing had the honour of drawing him, but for one day only, from his jockyard. This was the second wheat harvest, which was gathered in on the 15th of April. It was as much a success as the first, and yielded the number of grains which had been predicted. Five bushels, Captain!' said Pencroft, after having scrupulously measured his treasure. Five bushels, replied the engineer, and a hundred and thirty thousand grains a bushel will make six hundred and fifty thousand grains. Well, we will sow them all this time, said the sailor, except a little in reserve. Yes, Pencroft, and if the next crop gives a proportionate yield, we shall have four thousand bushels. And shall we eat bread? We shall eat bread. But we must have a mill. We will make one. The third cornfield was very much larger than the two first, and the soil, prepared with extreme care, received the precious seed. That done, Pencroft returned to his work. During this time Spilett and Herbert hunted in the neighborhood, and they ventured deep into the still unknown parts of the far west, their guns loaded with ball ready for any dangerous emergency. It was a vast thicket of magnificent trees, crowded together as if pressed for room. The exploration of these dense masses of wood was difficult in the extreme, and the reporter never ventured there without the pocket-compass, for the sun scarcely pierced through the thick foliage, and it would have been very difficult for them to retrace their way. It naturally happened that game was more rare in those situations, where there was hardly sufficient room to move. Two or three large herbivorous animals were, however, killed during the last fortnight of April. These were koalas, 
specimens of which the settlers had already seen to the north of the lake, and which stupidly allowed themselves to be killed among the thick branches of the trees in which they took refuge. Their skins were brought back to Granite House, and there, by the help of sulfuric acid, they were subjected to a sort of tanning process which rendered them capable of being used. On the 30th of April, the two sportsmen were in the depth of the far west, when the reporter, preceding Herbert a few paces, arrived in a sort of clearing, into which the trees more sparsely scattered had permitted a few rays to penetrate. Gideon Spilett was at first surprised at the odour which exhaled from certain plants with straight stalks, round and branchy, bearing grape-like clusters of flowers and very small berries. The reporter broke off one or two of these stalks, and returned to the lad, to whom he said, "'What can this be, Herbert?' "'Well, Mr. Spilett,' said Herbert, "'this is a treasure which will secure you Pencroft's gratitude forever.' "'Is it tobacco?' "'Yes, and though it may not be of the first quality, it is none the less tobacco.' "'Oh, good old Pencroft! Won't he be pleased?' but we must not let him smoke at all. He must give us our share. "'Ah! An idea occurs to me, Mr. Spilett,' replied Herbert. "'Don't let us say anything to Pencroft yet. We will prepare these leaves, and one fine day we will present him with a pipe already filled.' "'All right, Herbert. And on that day our worthy companion will have nothing left to wish for in this world.' The reporter and the lad secured a good store of the precious plant, and then returned to Granite House, where they smuggled it in with as much precaution as if Pencroft had been the most vigilant and severe of custom-house officers. Cyrus Harding and Neb were taken into confidence, and the sailor suspected nothing during the whole time, necessarily somewhat long, which was required in order to dry the small leaves, chop them up, and subject them to a certain torrefaction on hot stones. This took two months, but all these manipulations were successfully carried on unknown to Pencroft, for, occupied with the construction of his boat, he only returned to Granite House at the hour of rest. For some days they had observed an enormous animal two or three miles out in the open sea, swimming around Lincoln Island. This was a whale of the largest size, which apparently belonged to the southern species called the Cape Whale. "'What a lucky chance it would be if we could capture it!' cried the sailor. "'Ah! If we only had a proper boat and a good harpoon, I would say, after the beast, for he would be well worth the trouble of catching.' "'Well, Pencroft,' observed Harding, "'I should much like to watch you handling a harpoon. It would be very interesting.' "'I am astonished,' said the reporter, "'to see a whale in this comparatively high latitude.' "'Why so, Mr. Spilett?' replied Herbert. "'We are exactly in that part of the Pacific which English and American whalemen call the whale-field, and it is here, between New Zealand and South America, that the whales of the southern hemisphere are met with in the greatest numbers.' And Pencroft returned to his work, not without uttering a sigh of regret for every sailor is a born fisherman, and if the pleasure of fishing is in exact proportion to the size of the animal, one can judge how a whaler feels in sight of a whale. 
and if this had only been for pleasure. But they could not help feeling how valuable such a prize would have been to the colony, for the oil, fat, and bones would have been put to many uses. Now it happened that this whale appeared to have no wish to leave the waters of the island. Therefore, whether from the windows of Granite House or from Prospect Heights, Herbert and Gideon Spilett, when they were not hunting, or Neb, unless presiding over his fires, never left the telescope, but watched all the animal's movements. The cetacean, having entered far into Union Bay, made rapid furrows across it from Mandible Cape to Claw Cape, propelled by its enormously powerful flukes, on which it supported itself, and making its way through the water at the rate little short of twelve knots an hour. Sometimes also it approached so near to the island that it could be clearly distinguished. It was the southern whale, which is completely black, the head being more depressed than that of the northern whale. They could also see it throwing up from its air-holes to a great height a cloud of vapour, or of water, for, strange as it may appear, naturalists and whalers are not agreed on this subject. Is it air, or is it water which is thus driven out? It is generally admitted to be vapour, which, condensing suddenly by contact with the cold air, falls again as rain. However, the presence of this mammifer preoccupied the colonists. It irritated Pencroft especially, as he could think of nothing else while at work. He ended by longing for it, like a child for a thing which it has been denied. At night he talked about it in his sleep, and certainly if he had had the means of attacking it, if the sloop had been in a fit state to put to sea, he would not have hesitated to set out in pursuit. But what the colonists could not do for themselves, chance did for them and on the 3rd of May shouts from Neb, who had stationed himself at the kitchen window, announced that the whale was stranded on the beach of the island. Herbert and Gideon Spilett, who were just about to set out hunting, left their guns, Pencroft threw down his axe, and Harding and Neb, joining their companions, all rushed towards the scene of action. The stranding had taken place on the beach of Flotsam Point, three miles from Granite House, and at high tide. It was therefore probable that the cetacean would not be able to extricate itself easily. At any rate, it was best to hasten, so as to cut off its retreat if necessary. They ran with pickaxes and iron-tipped poles in their hands, passed over the Mercy Bridge, descended the right bank of the river, along the beach, and in less than twenty minutes the settlers were close to the enormous animal, above which flocks of birds already hovered. "'What a monster!' cried Neb. And the exclamation was natural, for it was a southern whale, eighty feet long, a giant of the species, probably not weighing less than a hundred and fifty thousand pounds. In the meanwhile the monster thus stranded did not move, nor attempt by struggling to regain the water while the tide was still high. It was dead and a harpoon was sticking out of its left side. "'There are whalers in these quarters, then,' said Gideon Spilett directly. "'Oh, Mr. Spilett, that doesn't prove anything,' replied Pencroft. "'Whales have been known to go thousands of miles with a harpoon in the side, and this one might even have been struck in the north of the Atlantic and 
come to die in the south of the Pacific, and it would be nothing astonishing. Pencroft, having torn the harpoon from the animal's side, read this inscription on it, Maria Stella Vineyard. "'A vessel from the vineyard! A ship from my country!' he cried. "'The Maria Stella! A fine whaler, upon my word! I know her well! Oh, my friends, a vessel from the vineyard! A whaler from the vineyard!' And the sailor, brandishing the harpoon, repeated, not without emotion, the name which he loved so well, the name of his birthplace. But as it could not be expected that the Maria Stella would come to reclaim the animal harpooned by her, they resolved to begin cutting it up before decomposition should commence. The birds, who had watched this rich prey for several days, had determined to take possession of it without further delay, and it was necessary to drive them off by firing at them repeatedly. The whale was a female, and a large quantity of milk was taken from it, which, according to the opinion of the naturalist Dufenbach, might pass for cow's milk, and indeed it differs from it neither in taste, colour, nor density. Pencroft had formerly served on board a whaling ship, and he could methodically direct the operation of cutting up, a sufficiently disagreeable operation lasting three days, but from which the settlers did not flinch, not even Gideon Spilett, who, as the sailor said, would end by making a real good castaway. The blubber, cut in parallel slices of two feet and a half in thickness, then divided into pieces which might weigh about a thousand pounds each, was melted down in large earthen pots brought to the spot, for they did not wish to taint the environs of Granite House, and in this fusion it lost nearly a third of its weight. But there was an immense quantity of it. The tongue alone yielded six thousand pounds of oil, and the lower lip four thousand. Then, besides the fat, which would ensure for a long time a store of stearin and glycerin, there were still the bones, for which a use could doubtless be found, although there was neither umbrellas nor stays used at Granite House. The upper part of the mouth of the cetacean was, indeed, provided on both sides with eight hundred horny blades, very elastic, of a fibrous texture, and fringed at the edge like great combs, at which the teeth, six feet long, served to retain the thousands of animaculae, little fish, and mollusks on which the whale fed. The operation finished, to the great satisfaction of the operators, the remains of the animal were left to the birds, who would soon make every vestige of it disappear, and their usual daily occupations were resumed by the inmates of Granite House. However, before returning to the dockyard, Cyrus Harding conceived the idea of fabricating certain machines which greatly excited the curiosity of his companions. He took a dozen of the whale's bones, cut them into six equal parts, and sharpened their ends. This machine is not my own invention, and it is frequently employed by the Aleutian hunters in Russian America. You see these bones, my friends. Well, when it freezes, I will bend them, and then wet them with water till they are entirely covered with ice, which will keep them bent, and I will strew them on the snow, having previously covered them with fat. Now what will happen if a hungry animal swallows one of these baits? 
Why, the heat of his stomach will melt the ice, and the bone, springing straight, will pierce him with its sharp points. "'Well, I do call that ingenious,' said Pencroft. "'And it will spare the powder and shot,' rejoined Cyrus Harding. "'This will be better than traps,' added Neb. In the meantime the boat-building progressed, and towards the end of the month half the planking was completed. It could already be seen that her shape was excellent and that she would sail well. Pencroft worked with unparalleled ardour, and only a sturdy frame could have borne such fatigue, but his companions were preparing in secret a reward for his labours, and on the 31st of May he was to meet with one of the greatest joys of his life. On that day, after dinner, just as he was about to leave the table, Pencroft felt a hand on his shoulder. It was the hand of Gideon Spilett, who said, "'One moment, Master Pencroft. You mustn't sneak off like that. You've forgotten your dessert.' "'Thank you, Mr. Spilett,' replied the sailor. "'I am going back to my work.' "'Well, a cup of coffee, my friend?' "'Nothing more.' "'A pipe, then?' Pencroft jumped up, and his great good-natured face grew pale when he saw the reporter presenting him with a ready-filled pipe, and Herbert with a glowing coal. The sailor endeavoured to speak, but could not get out a word, so seizing the pipe he carried it to his lips, then applying the coal he drew five or six great whiffs. A fragrant blue cloud soon arose, and from its depths a voice was heard repeating excitedly, tobacco real tobacco yes pencroft returned cyrus harding and very good tobacco too oh divine providence sacred author of all things cried the sailor nothing more is now wanting to our island and pencroft smoked and smoked and smoked and who made this discovery he asked at length you herbert no doubt no, Pencroft, it was Mr. Spilett. Mr. Spilett, exclaimed the sailor, seizing the reporter, and clasping him to his breast with such a squeeze that he had never felt anything like it before. Oh, Pencroft, said Spilett, recovering his breath at last, a truce for one moment. You must share your gratitude with Herbert, who recognized the plant, with Cyrus, who prepared it, and with Neb, who took a great deal of trouble to keep our secret. "'Well, my friends, I will repay you some day,' replied the sailor. "'Now we are friends for life!' End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part Two, Chapter Eleven. Winter arrived with the month of June, which is the December of the northern zones, and the great business was the making of warm and solid clothing. The musmons in the corral had been stripped of their wool, and this precious textile material was now to be transformed into stuff. Of course Cyrus Harding, having at his disposal neither carters, combers, polishers, stretchers, twisters, mule-jenny, nor self-acting machine to spin the wool, nor loom to weave it, 
was obliged to proceed in a simpler way, so as to do without spinning and weaving. And indeed he proposed to make use of the property which the filaments of wool possess when subjected to a powerful pressure of mixing together, and of manufacturing by this simple process the material called felt. This felt could then be obtained by a simple operation which, if it diminished the flexibility of the stuff, increased its power of retaining heat in proportion. Now the wool furnished by the musmons was composed of very short hairs, and was in a good condition to be felted. The engineer, aided by his companions, including Pencroft, who was once more obliged to leave his boat, commenced the preliminary operations, the subject of which was to remove the wool of that fat and oily substance with which it is impregnated, and which is called grease. This cleaning was done in vats filled with water, which was maintained at the temperature of seventy degrees, and in which the wool was soaked for four and twenty hours. It was then thoroughly washed in baths of soda, and, when sufficiently dried by pressure, it was in a state to be compressed, that is to say, to produce a solid material, rough, no doubt, and such as would have no value in a manufacturing centre of Europe or America, but which would be highly esteemed in the Lincoln Island markets. This sort of material must have been known from the most ancient times, and in fact the first woolen stuffs were manufactured by the process which Harding was now about to employ. Where Harding's engineering qualifications now came into play was in the construction of the machine for pressing the wool, for he knew how to turn ingeniously to profit the mechanical force, hitherto unused, which the waterfall on the beach possessed to move a fulling mill. Nothing could be more rudimentary. The wool was placed in troughs, and upon it fell in turns heavy wooden mallets. Such was the machine in question, and such it had been for centuries until the time when the mallets were replaced by cylinders of compression, and the material was no longer subjected to beating, but to regular rolling. The operation, ably directed by Cyrus Harding, was a complete success. The wool, previously impregnated with a solution of soap, intended on the one hand to facilitate the interlacing, the compression, and the softening of the wool, and on the other to prevent its diminution by the beating, issued from the mill in the shape of thick felt cloth. The roughnesses with which the staple of wool is naturally filled were so thoroughly entangled and interlaced together that a material was formed equally suitable either for garments or bedclothes. It was certainly neither merino, muslin, cashmere, rep, satin, alpaca, cloth, nor flannel. It was Lincolnian felt, and Lincoln Island possessed yet another manufacture. The colonists had now warm garments and thick bedclothes and they could without fear await the approach of the winter of 1866-67. The severe cold began to be felt about the 20th of June, and, to his great regret, Pencroft was obliged to suspend his boat-building, which he hoped to finish in time for next spring. The sailor's great idea was to make a voyage of discovery to Tabor Island. Although Harding could not approve of a voyage simply for curiosity's sake, for there was evidently nothing to be found on this desert and almost arid rock. A voyage of a hundred and fifty miles in a comparatively small vessel, over unknown seas, could not but cause him some anxiety. Suppose that their vessel, once out at sea, should be unable to reach Tabor Island, and could not return to Lincoln Island, 
what would become of her in the midst of the Pacific, so fruitful of disasters. Harding often talked over this project with Pencroft, and he found him strangely bent upon undertaking this voyage, for which determination he himself could give no sufficient reason. Now, said the engineer one day to him, I must observe, my friend, that after having said so much in praise of Lincoln Island, after having spoken so often of the sorrow you would feel if you were obliged to forsake it, you are the first to wish to leave it. "'Only to leave it for a few days,' replied Pencroft. "'Only for a few days, Captain. Time to go and come back, and see what that island is like.' "'But it is not nearly as good as Lincoln Island.' "'I know that beforehand.' "'Then why venture there?' "'To know what is going on in Tabor Island.' "'But nothing is going on there. Nothing could happen there.' "'Who knows?' "'And if you are caught in a hurricane?' "'There's no fear of that in the fine season,' replied Pencroft. "'But, Captain, as we must provide against everything, I shall ask your permission to take Herbert only with me on this voyage.' "'Pencroft,' replied the engineer, placing his hand on the sailor's shoulder, "'if any misfortune happens to you, or to this lad, whom chance has made our child, do you think we could ever cease to blame ourselves?' "'Captain Harding,' replied Pencroft, with unshaken confidence. "'We shall not cause you that sorrow. Besides, we will speak further of this voyage when the time comes to make it. And I fancy, when you have seen our tight-rigged little craft, when you have observed how she behaves at sea, when we sail round our island, for we will do so together, I fancy, I say, that you will no longer hesitate to let me go. I don't conceal from you that your boat will be a masterpiece.' "'Say, our boat, at least, Pencroft,' replied the engineer, disarmed for the moment. The conversation ended thus, to be resumed later on, without convincing either the sailor or the engineer. The first snow fell towards the end of the month of June. The corral had previously been largely supplied with stores, so that daily visits to it were not requisite. But it was decided that more than a week should never be allowed to pass without someone going to it. Traps were again set, and the machines manufactured by Harding were tried. The bent whalebones, imprisoned in a case of ice, and covered with a thick outer layer of fat, were placed on the border of the forest at a spot where animals usually passed on their way to the lake. To the engineer's great satisfaction, this invention, copied from the Aleutian fishermen, succeeded perfectly. A dozen foxes, a few wild boars, and even a jaguar were taken in this way, the animals being found dead, their stomachs pierced by the unbent bones. An incident here must be related, not only as interesting in itself, but because it was the first attempt made by the colonists to communicate with the rest of mankind. Gideon Spilett had already several times pondered whether to throw into the sea a letter enclosed in a bottle, which currents might perhaps carry to an inhabited coast, or to confide it to pigeons. But how could it be seriously hoped that either pigeons or bottles could cross the distance of twelve hundred miles which separated the island from any inhabited land? It would have been pure folly. But on the 30th of June the capture was effected, not without difficulty, of an albatross, which a shot from Herbert's gun had slightly wounded in the foot. 
It was a magnificent bird, measuring ten feet from wing to wing, and which could traverse seas as wide as the Pacific. Herbert would have liked to keep this superb bird, as its wound would soon heal, and he thought he could tame it. But Spillet explained to him that he should not neglect this opportunity of attempting to communicate by this messenger with the lands of the Pacific, for if the albatross had come from some inhabited region, there was no doubt but that it would return there so soon as it was set free. Perhaps in his heart Gideon Spillet, in whom the journalist sometimes came to the surface, was not sorry to have the opportunity of sending forth to take its chance an exciting article relating the adventures of the settlers in Lincoln Island. What a success for the authorized reporter of the New York Herald, and for the number which should contain the article, if it should ever reach the address of its editor, the Honorable James Bennett. Gideon Spillett then wrote out a concise account, which was placed in a strong waterproof bag, with an earnest request to whoever might find it, to forward it to the office of the New York Herald. This little bag was fastened to the neck of the albatross, and not to its foot, for these birds are in the habit of resting on the surface of the sea. Then liberty was given to this swift courier of the air, and it was not without some emotion that the colonists watched it disappear in the misty west. "'Where is he going to?' asked Pencroft. "'Towards New Zealand,' replied Herbert. "'A good voyage to you!' shouted the sailor, who himself did not expect any great result from this mode of correspondence. With the winter, work had been resumed in the interior of Granite House, mending clothes and different occupations, among others making the sails for their vessel, which were cut from the inexhaustible balloon-case. During the month of July the cold was intense, but there was no lack of either wood or coal. Cyrus Harding had established a second fireplace in the dining-room, and there the long winter evenings were spent. Talking while they worked, Reading when the hands remained idle, the time passed with profit to all. It was real enjoyment to the settlers when in their room, well lighted with candles, well warmed with coal, after a good dinner, elderberry coffee smoking in the cups, the pipes giving forth an odoriferous smoke, they could hear the storm howling without. Their comfort would have been complete if complete comfort could ever exist for those who are far from their fellow-creatures, and without any means of communication with them. They often talked of their country, of the friends whom they had left, of the grandeur of the American Republic, whose influence could not but increase. And Cyrus Harding, who had been much mixed up with the affairs of the Union, greatly interested his auditors by his recitals, his views, and his prognostics. It chanced one day that Spilett was led to say, "'But now, my dear Cyrus, all this industrial and commercial movement to which you predict a continual advance, does it not run the danger of being sooner or later completely stopped?' "'Stopped? And by what?' "'By the want of coal, which may justly be called the most precious of minerals.' "'Yes, the most precious, indeed,' replied the engineer and it would seem that nature wished to prove that it was so, by making the diamond, which is simply pure carbon crystallized. "'You don't mean to say, Captain,' interrupted Pencroft, 
that we burn diamonds in our stoves in the shape of coal? <laughs> no, my friend, replied Harding. However, resumed Gideon Spilett, you do not deny that some day the coal will be entirely consumed? Oh, the veins of coal are still considerable, and the hundred thousand miners who annually extract from them a hundred millions of hundred weights have not nearly exhausted them. With the continuing consumption of coal, replied Gideon Spilett, it can be foreseen that the hundred thousand workmen will soon become two hundred thousand, and that the rate of extraction will be doubled. Doubtless, but after the European mines, which will be soon worked more thoroughly with new machines, the American and Australian mines will for a long time yet provide for the consumption in trade. "'For how long a time?' asked the reporter. "'For at least two hundred and fifty or three hundred years.' "'That is reassuring for us, but a bad lookout for our great-grandchildren,' observed Pencroft. "'They will discover something else,' said Herbert. "'It is to be hoped so,' answered Spilett, "'for without coal there would be no machinery, and without machinery there would be no railways, no steamers, no manufactories, nothing of that which is indispensable to modern civilization.' "'But what will they find?' asked Pencroft. "'Can you guess, Captain?' "'Nearly, my friend. "'And what will they burn instead of coal?' "'Water,' replied Harding. "'Water!' cried Pencroft. "'Water is fuel for steamers and engines? "'Water to heat water?' "'Yes, but water decomposed into its primitive elements,' replied Cyrus Harding, "'and decomposed doubtless by electricity, "'which will then have become a powerful and manageable force.' For all great discoveries, by some inexplicable law, appear to agree, and become complete at the same time. Yes, my friends, I believe that water will one day be employed as fuel, that hydrogen and oxygen which constitute it, used singly or together, will furnish an inexhaustible source of heat and light, of an intensity of which coal is not capable. Some day the coal-rooms of steamers and the tenders of locomotives will, instead of coal, be stored with these two condensed gases, which will burn in the furnaces with enormous calorific power. There is therefore nothing to fear. As long as the earth is inhabited, it will supply the wants of its inhabitants, and there will be no want of either light or heat, as long as the productions of the vegetable, mineral, or animal kingdoms do not fail us. I believe, then, that when the deposits of coal are exhausted, we shall heat and warm ourselves with water. Water will be the coal of the future. I should like to see that, observed the sailor. You were born too soon, Pencroft, returned Neb, who only took part in the discussion by these words. However, it was not Neb's speech which interrupted the conversation, but Top's barking which broke out again with that strange intonation which had before perplexed the engineer. At the same time Top began to run round the mouth of the well, which opened at the extremity of the interior passage. "'What can Top be barking in that way for?' asked Pencroft. "'And Jupe be growling like that,' added Herbert. In fact, the orang, joining the dog, gave unequivocal signs of agitation, and, singular to say, the two animals appeared more uneasy than angry. 
"'It is evident,' said Gideon Spilett, "'that this well is in direct communication with the sea, and that some marine animal comes from time to time to breathe at the bottom.' "'That's evident,' replied the sailor, "'and there can be no other explanation to give. Quiet there, Top!' added Pencroft, turning to the dog. "'And you, Jupe, be off to your room.' The ape and the dog were silent. Jupe went off to bed, but Top remained in the room, and continued to utter low growls at intervals during the rest of the evening. There was no further talk on the subject, but the incident, however, clouded the brow of the engineer. During the remainder of the month of July there was alternate rain and frost. The temperature was not so low as during the preceding winter, and its maximum did not exceed eight degrees Fahrenheit. But although this winter was less cold, it was more troubled by storms and squalls. The sea, besides, often endangered the safety of the chimneys. At times it almost seemed as if an undercurrent raised these monstrous billows which thundered against the wall of Granite House. When the settlers, leaning from their windows, gazed on the huge watery masses breaking beneath their eyes, they could not but admire the magnificent spectacle of the ocean in its impotent fury. The waves rebounded in dazzling foam, the beach entirely disappearing under the raging flood, and the cliff appearing to emerge from the sea itself, the spray rising to a height of more than a hundred feet. During these storms it was difficult and even dangerous to venture out, owing to the frequently falling trees. However, the colonists never allowed a week to pass without having paid a visit to the corral. Happily, this enclosure, sheltered by the southeastern spur of Mount Franklin, did not greatly suffer from the violence of the hurricanes, which spared its trees, sheds, and palisades. But the poultry-yard on Prospect Heights, being directly exposed to the gusts of wind from the east, suffered considerable damage. The pigeon-house was twice unroofed, and the paling blown down. All this required to be remade more solidly than before, for, as may be clearly seen, Lincoln Island was situated in one of the most dangerous parts of the Pacific. It really appeared as if it formed the central point of vast cyclones, which beat it perpetually as the whip does the top. Only here it was the top which was motionless, and the whip which moved. During the first week of the month of August, the weather became more moderate, and the atmosphere recovered the calm which it appeared to have lost forever. With the calm the cold again became intense, and the thermometer fell to eight degrees Fahrenheit below zero. On the 3rd of August an excursion which had been talked of for several days was made into the southeastern part of the island, towards Tadorn Marsh. The hunters were tempted by the aquatic game which took up their winter quarters there. Wild duck, snipe, teal, and grebe abounded there, and it was agreed that a day should be devoted to an expedition against these birds. Not only Gideon Spilett and Herbert, but Pencroft and Neb also took part in this excursion. Cyrus Harding alone, alleging some work as an excuse, did not join them, but remained at Granite House. The hunters proceeded in the direction of Port Balloon, in order to reach the marsh, after having promised to be back by the evening. Top and Jupe accompanied them. As soon as they had passed over the Mercy Bridge, the engineer raised it and returned, 
intending to put into execution a project for the performance of which he wished to be alone. Now this project was to minutely explore the interior well, the mouth of which was on a level with the passage of Granite House, and which communicated with the sea, since it formerly supplied a way to the waters of the lake. Why did Top so often run around this opening? Why did he utter such strange barks when a sort of uneasiness seemed to draw him towards this well? Why did Jupe join Top in a sort of common anxiety? Had this well branches besides the communication with the sea? Did it spread towards other parts of the island? This is what Cyrus Harding wished to know. He had resolved, therefore, to attempt the exploration of the well during the absence of his companions, and an opportunity for doing so had now presented itself. It was easy to descend to the bottom of the well by employing the rope-ladder which had not been used since the establishment of the lift. The engineer drew the ladder to the hole, the diameter of which measured nearly six feet, and allowed it to unroll itself after having securely fastened its upper extremity. Then, having lighted a lantern, taken a revolver, and placed a cutlass in his belt, he began the descent. The sides were everywhere entire, but points of rock jutted out here and there, and by means of these points it would have been quite possible for an active creature to climb to the mouth of the well. The engineer remarked this, but although he carefully examined these points by the light of his lantern, he could find no impression no fracture which could give any reason to suppose that they had either recently or at any former time been used as a staircase. Cyrus Harding descended deeper, throwing the light of his lantern on all sides. He saw nothing suspicious. When the engineer had reached the last rounds he came upon the water, which was then perfectly calm. Neither at its level nor in any other part of the well did any passage open which could lead to the interior of the cliff. The wall which Harding struck with the hilt of his cutlass sounded solid. It was compact granite, through which no living being could force a way. To arrive at the bottom of the well, and then climb up to its mouth, it was necessary to pass through the channel under the rocky subsoil of the beach, which placed it in communication with the sea, and this was only possible for marine animals. As to the question of knowing where this channel ended, at what point of the shore, and at what depth beneath the water, it could not be answered. Then Cyrus Harding, having ended his survey, reascended, drew up the ladder, covered the mouth of the well, and returned thoughtfully to the dining-room, saying to himself, I have seen nothing, and yet there is something there. End of chapter What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.